Jacob Jones Goldstein's cat, Monty, has turned his life into a waking nightmare. Sequestered within the walls of his home and practicing social distancing, Jacob spends his days watching material for his horror podcast's next episode. An episode focusing on other poor souls likewise trapped in isolation due to a crisis outside their walls. But despite braving the horror of the living dead, extraterrestrials, and Lovecraftian interdimensional beings, the poor souls in those movies never faced the ginger streak of furry bedlam that is Monty. The inexplicable acts of wanton destruction from this feline fright machine have left Jacob in a perpetual state of terror. Terror being derived from the old French terror for an object of fear or dread, or something that is, put in plainer terms, scary. And the objects of said fear and dread, such as Monty, could be generalized as things, items, John, or even simply stuff, stuff, scary stuff. Scary stuff. Scary stuff. Scary stuff. A new episode of Scary Stuff. Scary stuff. What does it mean? <clears throat> it means I really hope you've seen Pondy Pool, because otherwise this joke won't make any sense at all. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Scary Stuff, and this month your hosts are practicing social distancing. I'm broadcasting from post-production land, but one of us is still broadcasting from the usual Possum Kingdom Studios, which would be Jacob Jones Goldstein. Hello from Possum Kingdom Studios. And broadcasting from his rich bourgeoisie Fraggle Rock bunker is Nick <laughs> <Lini>. <laughs> Hi, everybody. <laughs> Dancing his cares away worries for another day. That's definitely me, that part. <laughs> How many dozers died to feed your family today, Nick? <laughs> A bit more since they were actually on the menu. <laughs> I miss you guys. Miss you. It's been too long. I'm, I'm so glad we're back here. And thanks to everyone who listened to our Mike Flanagan episode and the Ouija bonus episode. So this time around, we are, as the intro implied, we're all practicing social distancing. The previous episodes were recorded basically three days before things really went to shit so um the landscapes kind of changed a bit as reflected by us all recording in various locations this time around so we got a lineup of movies to match i think our last recording was the last time i actually like left the house for a social gathering was to see you it was for me absolutely (laughs) except i didn't leave the house i was here (laughs) (laughs) you've got a couple days on the rest of us as far as isolation time you were the last two human beings that i like that aren't related to me <laughs> that I have seen. <laughs> Except for my, my neighbor Spider. I like my neighbor Spider. He's kind of cool. But I've only seen him spider. in the street. Yeah, he's a guy who used to be in a heavy metal band. Nice. Yeah, and he walks his tiny little dog up and down the street. He's a nice dude. Is that the Cody dog or is that a different neighbor? It's a different neighbor. Okay. Cody is the horror movie dog that howls at 5 a.m. and sounds like a human being. I don't, I don't sleep at all anymore (laughs) (laughs) sorry 
Sleep is overrated. It's for the week. Well-rested, well-adjusted week, but week nonetheless. Are any of us well-rested or well-adjusted? No. I'm not right now. <laughs> I mean, I, the last time I left, no, I left my house to weed whack my mother's lawn the other day, and I got an allergy attack out of it. So even when I go outside, I'm punished immediately. <laughs> yeah, going into this, I thought, well, one upside will be is I will have more time to prep for stuff for the pod, and that has not been the case. Decidedly not the opposite. Well, in order to prep, you need to be able to tell the difference between days and hours and minutes, which is no longer a possibility. Everything is just the hum. Yeah. I really don't understand how I got busier when the pandemic hit than I was before it. It's I just finding free time now is such a hassle. It has a lot to do with the homeschooling. I'll <laughs> <laughs> well, say I had free time and then I started playing Animal Crossing and now that's my job. So <laughs> I'm literally going to set an alarm to make sure I get up tomorrow morning before noon so that I can buy turnips. <laughs> Time-sensitive turnips? They only sell them until noon on Sunday mornings, and then you have to play the speculation game all week. <laughs> so you have to get in early for turnips in this game, like you have to get up early for Lysol wipes and hand sanitizers in real life? Yes. I also have a home loan. <laughs> and this game is escapist, you say? Sure. <laughs> You heard me say it was my job now, right? (laughs) (laughs) So while we've been dealing with a lot of social distancing in the real life, we thought it'd be fun to do an episode on social distancing in movies. Boy, was this a terrible mistake. How depressing (laughs) were these movies? (laughs) Again, speaking of escapism, yeah, we were really able to transport ourselves away to a vastly different landscape of people trapped inside and terrified. (laughs) Why didn't we do crowd horror? (laughs) what's this horror about it's not about people touching that's for sure horror on the wide open plains we could have done the wind we could have done (laughs) just space i know shit sucks in the old west but at least there's fresh air i so fresh air i guess that would bring us to our first movie yeah so we're going into the mist from 2007 and not the good gorilla kind (laughs) (laughs) the mist is brought to us produced and distributed by dimension films their first three films ever actually hellraiser 3 Stuart gordon's fortress and children of the corn 2 that's where they came out of the gate running and they're also responsible for such running directly into a brick wall (laughs) well they're also responsible for such films as like grindhouse teeth and clown so you know i personally enjoy dimension films (laughs) i'm gonna throw this out there based on that list you just gave that explains a lot about the mist (laughs) (laughs) yeah well and dimension being the studio because they're the only studio which would let frank darabont do the ending he wanted to do but we'll get to that later on in the discussion Mm -hmm. and mist also being one of the very very few stephen king source materials that i've actually read really yep it's a good story i have not oh really (laughs) that's funny the one you haven't again if my life wasn't a fugue over the last month i would have read it for this But uh, It's short. It's in a novella. I don't know which book it was originally published in. Skeleton Crew, I believe. Yes. Was it? Okay. Yes. Yeah, when I got it, it was a movie tie-in edition, so it was just that novella. Because I was really excited for this when it was announced. Because So at this point, Frank Darabont, who did the screenplay and directed this, he had done Shawshank Redemption and Green Mile, so he was two for two with, I would say, probably great. I haven't seen Green Mile in a long time, but at the very least, solid Stephen King adaptations, and now he was doing a horror one. Mm -hmm. And two out of three is not bad. That's a good average. (laughs) Really? Oh, this is going to be interesting. Oh, yeah, I didn't care for this movie at all. 
But wow, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, let's uh, let's get into it. Then. And, and, and I'll say I, I was looking when we picked this, I was looking forward to it because I'd always wanted to watch the movie. And I'd always been a little wary because the ending sounded rough. Yeah. But I always liked the concept. And as I'm discovering, I almost always enjoy Thomas Jane when his hair is normal. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, my second note is Thomas Jane has better hair this month. <laughs> Speaking of Thomas Jane, the movie actually starts off with Thomas Jane's character named David. And this is always fun. He's the first thing you see him doing is painting a picture of Roland from the Dark Tower series. Yes. Yeah, I got real excited about that. Yeah, that was fantastic. There's other homages, too, in the room. If you look, some of the other notable paintings are one of the thing and another one of Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah, well, they're all paintings by Drew Struzan, Mm -hmm. who the studio is apparently specifically modeled after Drew Struzan's studio who's a phenomenal poster artist. And they set up specifically that not only is David Drayton doing a painting of the Dark Tower, but he, like Drew Struzan, predominantly does movie poster artwork. So the implication there is that they're making a Dark Tower movie. Mm-hmm. Did they make that? I feel like there's this gap in my memory <laughs> where they were going to make a Dark Tower movie and then there's just fuzz and then nothing. We'll rip that Band-Aid off and dig up that trauma in a later episode. We don't. We don't have to. No, we're going to. We don't have to. Because I went through it, too. I bought that. I've not gone through it, and so... Fucking movie. (laughs) I legitimately want to do an episode of movies, because we both have movies in our Amazon list that we bought rather than rented and regret. Oh, yeah. So here's what we do at Tower. I've got one, too, so I'd like to build an episode around that at some point. I just choose to not watch it and just repeat the the name Idris Ilba over and over again and go, I've had a good movie experience with the Dark Tower. I, look, they made a bad movie that has Idris Elba in it. That doesn't even make sense. It's not possible. It's not possible. I'll say this, bringing it back to the mist. When it started, I got kind of excited. Because, all right, the first thing you see is the gunslinger. And I, I love the gunslinger. And I know there's a lot of theories that the mist is something that escaped from Todash space. And they created a thinny. Yep. And that's where it all comes from. So, I, you know, all those kind of gunslinger connections are things that really tickle me. And this stuff that I love about Stephen King. And then here's Thomas Jane, and I like Thomas Jane. And then, holy shit, Captain Holt shows up. Yep. <laughs> That's Andre Brower, who is the neighbor. Now, one of the other reasons I was very excited about it was I was a big Andre Brower fan. Absolutely. Growing up, and you know, I was one of those kids who, once you hit seventh grade, they had this PG version of Glory that they would show all the kids in school, which you could always tell it was the school cut because we heard kids whisper about, oh, there's another cut of this movie where this dude's head explodes in the first two minutes. So that's how you can tell you got the PG version is it doesn't have the dude getting shot in the face with a cannonball. You know how you know I'm older than you guys? We went to see that in the theaters in school. Uh, Did you? Yes. They took us on a field trip. Nice. That was a mistake. <laughs> I had the special VHS tape that was brought to us by Pepsi uh, wow. and edited for, for seventh grade consumption. But one of my takeaways from Glory, though, was I loved Andre Brower and never saw him in enough things. I was in a household that apparently never watched Homicide Life on the Streets, which if I'd known, I could have been having my Andre Brower fix for seven seasons or however long he was on that show to date i've only seen the first season but it's what i've seen was terrific and yeah that legitimately was one of the reasons i was looking forward to this movie was holy shit it's andre brower i mean this movie has a really solid cast yep top to bottom a lot of stephen king veterans yeah a lot of stephen king veterans and a lot of frank darabont veterans so skipping to the supporting cast we've got jeffrey demon who's dan miller in this who's a regular then there's also bill sadler who's one of the mechanics and apparently, I just found this out before recording, so apparently he did an audio version of The Mist in the past where he was David Drayton. Yeah. 
So he kind of had uh, some double dipping, I guess, in the uh, in the mess there. He was also in, I want to say, he was one of the harder prisoners in Shawshank, right? Yeah, he's a Darabont regular. So yeah. he was in both Shawshank, and I don't remember who he was in Green Mile, but I was sure he was in there somewhere. And Bill Sadler's one of these supporting actors who's pretty much always terrific. Yeah, Frances Steerhagen was in it, and she's great. Yep. I have a note about her because she's always so comforting and nice. And then I looked at her filmography, and it's just horror and sci-fi. <laughs> like, she has been in so many awful things, and I'm like, no wonder she's so comforting. She's she's the nice old lady in all these movies. <laughs> yeah, she's terrific in this. What's her face in the... um? She was in the very end of Ouija. She's in the Insidious movies. I'm blanking on her oh, name. Oh, yeah. Oh, Lynn Shay? Yes. Lynn Shay is kind of yes. taking over Francis Steerhagen's bit. Yes, kind of, yeah. <laughs> There's also Laurie Holden, who is Amanda Dumfries, the teacher, and she's, I don't think she was in, off the top of my head, Shawshank or Green Mile, but she was definitely in The Majestic, which Darabont did before this, and then she was in Walking Dead. A bunch of people from this obviously rolled into Walking Dead when Frank Darabont started season one of that. Did Chris Sherman end up in anything else he did? Because his appearance was hilarious to me. Oh, right. <laughs> Chris Sherman was the redheaded cashier, and I, I knew him eh. from American Pie. Yep. The Shermanator. The Shermanator. Yeah, Chris Owen. And yeah, Darabont hadn't seen American Pie, so he just cast him based on his audition. And then all of a sudden, everyone was excited when he showed up on Sunday. He's like, why is everyone so excited about this bad boy character? And I had <laughs> yeah, zero clue about the previous work he'd done. And it's funny because I... American Pie was one of the two first DVDs I ever owned. Really? When I got a, I got a DVD player for a birthday and two movies, and they were Gladiator and American Pie. The hell of a pair! Wow, what a twofer! So I I have seen Gladiator and American Pie a lot more than I should have seen Gladiator and American Pie. <laughs> so yeah, I got real excited when I saw Chris Sherman, and you knew he was going to die. Oh yeah, Bag Boy with that look on his face—if he doesn't get eaten by a monster, somebody's going to straight up shoot him. <laughs> And then the other main cast member, well, there's two other major people we haven't mentioned. Toby Jones is Ollie Weeks. Toby Jones, another guy who's just generally solid every time he shows up. And then Marcia Gay Harden is Mrs. Carmody. She's amazing. Yeah, that was the character who, um, again, I haven't read a lot of Stephen King, but I guess Mrs. Carmody is generally referred to as the most Stephen King of Stephen King characters, I guess. That feels right. In terms of the religious fanaticism element of it. And in reading the novella, it was like, well, this is going to be interesting to see how she translates. And Marcia Gay Harden gives it a A for effort. Absolutely. She was my least favorite part of the movie. She's trying, though. Yeah. <laughs> That's it, her intention. I will she give doesn't you, want to be liked. Like, I get her as a villain was cool. I just, the, I never bought the character at all. It just didn't work mm. for me. Well, let's quickly get you, let's get us to the scene where all these characters are together. So it starts off with him painting, like we said. And they go to bed, the storm hits, and it wrecks the house. Trees hit all over the place. Somehow the tree runs through parallel into their window. It didn't just fall on it. It fell <laughs> no, and it then just, it just speared drifts. itself. Yeah. It, just, it strafed <laughs> right into there. <laughs> <laughs> they hit out in the basement for the night and wake up and assess the damage and everything's wrecked. Including their boathouse, which has been destroyed by the neighbor Brent, Andre Brower's character. Look, I'm just going to call him Captain Holt. It'll be nice to try to give him his real name or his actual name, but it's going to be Captain Holt the whole time. Anyway, so they exchange information. They decide to go into town to, you know, see how things are, get supplies, fix things up. And right off the bat, you can see the mist starting to come down off the mountains, real thick and steady. They drive into town. They go to the store. 
And of course, they're in the store when the mist finally arrives with uh, Dan Miller running into the store saying, there are things in the mist. There are things in the mist. Something in the mist took John Lee. Yep. This is the moment you're in. These are all the people who were stuck in the store when the mist hit and they are trying to figure out what to do next. Yeah. And the setup for it initially is as David Drayton is assessing the damage. His son draws his attention to the lake and says, what's that, daddy? And you see this cloud like mist, you know, rolling over the top. And Thomas Jane has the line and says, oh, some mist of some kind rolling across the lake. So if you just change it to some kind of fog of some kind, we might have had zombie pirates invading this town. And <laughs> we would have gotten the Carpenter movie instead. But no, nope, it was the fog. Well, it was originally going to be called The Fog, and then he changed the name because it was too similar to the movie The Fog. Oh, did he? I read some tidbit about that. It might have been for the story or whatever, but they. It would have been for the story, yeah. yeah. Now, there is one actor you failed to mention in your list. So they're in the store, and one of the people who show up are these three military men. One of which is Private Jessup, yep. who's played by Sam, Sam Witwer. I've always loved Sam Witwer, whether it's from being human or his work on Force Unleashed. I was talking about how we were going to be doing The Mist in the next episode with a friend of the podcast, Nick Owens. And he said, oh, you like Sam Witwer? I'm like, yeah. He goes, you're going to watch The Mist? He's like, yeah. He goes, you know, you could reach out to Sam Witwer. I was like, uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, Sam Witwer has a channel on Twitch. He is the user handle uh, Sam Witwer, and he plays video games and answers people's questions when they get on there. So I hopped on Twitch. Nice. And I pulled up his account, and I said, hi, I'm Nick from uh, the Scary Stuff Podcast, and uh, we're going to be doing an episode on social distancing. I was wondering what you wanted to say about your time on, on the movie The Mist, and he responded. I have his response. Fuck off. He said he started oh. working in The Mist. No. <laughs> And there you have it. Wouldn't you rather talk about Force Unleashed? <laughs> We're playing games here, kid. Move on. No, <laughs> no. He's uh, he started working on the mist directly after he completed working on the Force Unleashed. There was no real break in between. He just jumped right in. Wait, that game was that long ago? Yeah, the Force Unleashed was from like 2007. Yeah, no kidding. Yep. Time has no meaning. He said both projects and with the coronavirus, you know, you're basically dealing with an invisible enemy, but in the end, it's really ourselves. With each of these situations, if you behaved responsibly and with a certain level of discipline, everyone will benefit. It's important to have hope. Never give up hope. Yes, things are going to get gnarly, but if we work together, we will come through this. And uh, that was Sam Whitmer's opinion on the movies and huh? our current situation. So, I'm, Wow. He's a great guy. I was really excited that I got to ask him that question. I hope real life ends better because doesn't he get eaten by a spider in the mist? No. More of a mantis thing. Uh, apparently he gets eaten by the arena monster or one of the arena monsters from episode two based on the silhouette. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And speaking of, so yeah, we got some interesting monster designs in this movie. Oh, yeah. Which were contributions from multiple people. I think Gregory Melton was the production designer, but a lot of the initial designs for the, the monsters, practical effects for them were done by KNB Effects, huge effects company with Greg Nicotero. But a lot of the initial designs for it were actually done by Bernie Wrightson. Yeah nice huge comic artist so that was really cool to see yeah, and they didn't want to include the or they weren't originally going to include the best one which is the monster at the end the behemoth the, the at behemoth. the end that was nice uh, they kind of badgered frank darabont into including it yep it was a good move i was really glad we had it it was the best scene in the movie it really gives you the scale of what you're dealing with here and now that i know that Whitwer is a friend of the podcast every scene with him is the best scene in the movie <laughs> <laughs> And he is, I believe, so I, I haven't read the source material since I first 
read it, which was back in 2007, right, for this at theater, because I saw this in theaters. But Jessup, I believe, is entirely a movie addition, at least based on the commentary. His character doesn't exist at all. He's just there to have his eventual fate is there to kind of up the stakes of the Miss Carmody subplot. Mm -hmm. He also is the one that kind of explains what's happening at Project Arrowhead. Yeah, because a lot of that's left... Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of that is is left vague. Originally, the movie opened in the script. There was an opening sequence that was going to be rather explicit as far as what happened with Project Arrowhead. And Andre Brower was actually the person who gave him the suggestion to cut it out. Oh, nice. Yeah, he was meeting with Frank Darabont over the part, and he said, do you really think you need that opening scene? And Darabont thought on it for a couple of days and said, you know what, I guess I don't. So, <laughs> which is good because it meant they saved money, because as you can tell from this, this movie was made for $18 million, so which was pretty low even then. And there's other studios that offered him a lot more, but Darabont went with Dimension specifically because they would let him keep the ending that he wanted. They also made it really quick. Yeah, and part of that was... Darabont at this point was coming off directing an episode of The Shield. Off the top of my head, I believe it was the season five premiere. He only did one episode of it. And on TV, obviously, you're, the crew are used to a lot of you know run and gun, do things quickly. So in having to do this movie on a fast time frame, he just basically pulled a shitload of folks over from The Shield who already had experience doing things, you know, really, really super fast and brought them over. So his DP, Ron Schmidt, is the DP from The Shield. There's also Deb Aquila, the casting director, who was the casting director on The Shield. And so that's part of why you have this sort of handheld aesthetic to a lot of the stuff in The Mist, because they use that same general camera style for The um, for the Shield. I, I think it works against the movie in a couple ways in The Mist, because they do this kind of sudden zoom in sometimes during some sequences in The Mist that I thought were kind of distracting. But yeah, this movie was made in an incredibly short time frame comparatively. Darabont said in the past he had never prepped a movie with less than six months lead in, and this movie was like six weeks. Yeah, yeah, very fast. It it looks good. So, I mean, I would say that they didn't lose a lot in that. It's well acted, like everybody in it is fine. Yes. I just think it ends up clunky and... It doesn't feel organic at all. Like the scene to scene to scene doesn't feel organic to me. And that was part of my big problem with it. There were, there were things I liked, like the scene where they go in the back and they first encounter the tentacles. That was fun. It was all right, but it didn't like the drama in it never felt like they got to where they needed to be. Like you never really cared about Chris Sherman unless you happen to really like American pie, which I did. (laughs) And I still didn't care, but it, it was funny when Thomas Jane goes back there. The lights are out and he bumps in and starts tripping all over everything. That was hilarious. I'm not sure it was supposed to be, but it was. I don't think you were supposed to be that torn up over his death, honestly. I think it was just supposed to be a little disturbing, unnerving, and establishing what threat is going on here. At no point did they actually try to get you to care about this kid. In fact, maybe the opposite. He was just kind of a dick. <laughs> well, but it's, it's also to try and establish the relationships between William Sadler Thomas Jane and, and his and, crew and his yeah. crew. Absolutely. But the best part of it is still Toby Jones. And he is the best part of this entire movie is Toby Jones. Ollie, is Ollie the bag boy. Man of action. He is nothing but yes. Like it's so against type for him, but he's the one that gets the gun. Yep. He's the one that takes care of the final problem. He's I mean, mm-hmm. he is out there. He is fucking shit up this entire movie. <laughs> and he is he is great. Like, he's got the Punisher on his team, and he makes the Punisher look like Daredevil. Yeah, Ollie's number one, and Irene Repler, the Francis Sternhagen character, she's probably a close second with her. She's amazing. Just chucking peas at people. 
Yeah. That was the best. She oh, thinks you're not so happy. Pow. I got a whole can of peas over here. <laughs> and I got a lot of peas. Hey, you know, of peas. And the way the story unfolds is fine. It's it's essentially it's a Lord of the Flies kind of thing, but with actual big giant man eating flies. And <laughs> but I just in the end at no point in the film did I ever really buy the dual tensions of outside and inside. It it just never clicked for me. I wanted it to, because again, I like all these people. I like Stephen King. I'm usually fine giving Stephen King movies the benefit of the doubt, but this one never worked for me, even up until the ending. And the ending didn't work for me either. Hmm. Yeah. Worked for me. I mean, it was very much a, the group splitting up into the us and them kind of mentality and those who couldn't handle it or didn't, or were stressed beyond measure, just turning to anyone who claimed to have answers. It's a very cynical look at humanity and what we're capable of <laughs> conceptually it's great yeah execution wise it's just not that was my problem is i just never bought what any of the folks were selling i like the concepts and i believe in the concepts like i think that's exactly what would happen because we're all terrible in fact we're figuring out right now looking on the news that this is what happens <laughs> so some people go out and protest the mist i mean you know that's the big difference <laughs> yeah it was one of my takeaways from it which is hey remember when the mrs carmody character was comedically overwrought <laughs> yeah and now <laughs> I, I, I will say i did like her saying my life for you yeah which i didn't realize was a stephen king carryover yeah it's a callback if nothing else specifically to the trash can man in the stand yep my life for you which, if this quarantine goes on much longer, we're doing next month. I don't care. I'll do it myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, we could hold out until at least the remake comes out, the one Josh Boone's doing. Well, if they ever start making TV again. Yeah. So, yeah, actually, uh, I was kind of wrong. There's the, the groups break up into three groups. The ones who want to stay and be civil about it, those who want to get out, and those who want to make this something bigger than it is. And I, part of what bugged me, I guess, is Andre Brower's exit early on is not anything. They have the breakdown because they already kind of don't like each other and he doesn't believe what's going on. He thinks everybody's putting him on. There's racial overtones, but they never really dive very into it. Yeah. And then he walks out with the biker and you never see what happens to him. Well, the problem is they try to like, so there's that one scene where they take him back to show him the tentacle and he won't do it. And he's basically thinks they're pulling his leg. They're trying to, in a single scene, because they've really not done it with any other part of the movie establish and develop their animosity toward each other you're right it should have been more consistent through the film to actually have more weight but and, th and this is my problem moment. with the tentacle scene is is that it's the paranormal activity three let's call it a paradox I knew you were going to go there <laughs> in that people in scary life-threatening situations aren't going to be that stubborn about things i i think you have way too much faith in humanity and he just refuses <laughs> to go see it and he's just like i'm not going to do this you're you know whatever you're trying to make a fool out of me he's like no come on man yeah. it's fucking tentacle and he won't do it and it's just like it's the same thing i'm not going to look at this video that shows what kind of danger my children are in normally i'd, I'd agree on that but yeah i think brower does a incredible job selling it yes and trying agreed. to make that work and the racial subtext stuff was also added yeah he added that yeah which adds a great dimension to it yeah i wanted it to i again i just i i just had trouble buying anything from anybody in this movie so hmm. i think part of the problem is everybody in it is legitimately <laughs> incompetent I, I love every time you two disagree it's not an argument it's just eric going huh <laughs> i love it i love it 
it's the sheepish <laughs> this very muffled thing <laughs> <laughs> I'm just turning behind me and softly <laughs> ringing a bell. <laughs> well, I, I can understand that it, it's a difference of opinion. Whereas, yes. with you, you're just wrong when you say things. <laughs> Ding! <laughs> <laughs> I can't help that I had a bougie upbringing in the rich school. <laughs> Go have another dozer and shut the hell up. <laughs> doozer, doozer. <laughs> Tastes like suffering. All right. <laughs> that being said, I absolutely would have followed Andre Brower out of the store when he leaves. And be like, yeah, this yeah. guy seems like he knows what he's doing. Yep, it's Andre Brower. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll be honest. I probably would have done the math too. Like, giant biker, Andre Brower, what's left over? Mm, Punisher, crazy lady, Toby Jones, man of action. Mm. Bunch of redneck mechanics. Yeah. <laughs> it 100% would depend upon whether I was privy to the tentacle situation or not. If I had seen that crap, I would be stuck in that store for the next decade until somebody got me the proper, you know, mental health I needed. But <laughs> Tentacle sets up one of my favorite lines, which is when the guy who runs the shop sees it comes out and <laughs> it appears we may have a problem of some magnitude here. <laughs> I was tempted for that to be the name of the episode, a problem of some magnitude. It's just they're all so bad at everything. Like, there's not one person in this movie you would say, yes, that's a competent person, except Toby Jones, man of action. Ollie, yeah, Ollie. He's it, though. Ollie gets shit done. Yeah. And Ollie is Ollie is a bag boy at the supermarket, so you know Ollie has some problems somewhere. <laughs> and David means well, he just needs people to listen to him and believe in him to make things get done, and that doesn't happen. Yeah, that's the problem. He's also an artist, which is why I found everything he did <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> what does david do he's a painter so we're gonna listen to the painter fuck no oh my you don't listen God. to them. artists are not leaders <laughs> oh my jake what the hell is wrong with you <laughs> i love you everybody in oddity prodigy oh my god <laughs> exceptions to this include marcella hart conlin <laughs> jennifer moran <laughs> And anyone else who wants to listen to this podcast. <laughs> Look, I'm just saying. When you're selecting classes in D&D, &D, one of them is not painter. It's bard. It's the bard. <laughs> the hell's wrong with you? It's the bard. Musicians are different. Bards are not just musicians, okay? Now, they're typically musicians because it's the easiest thing to like, kind of weave into what you're doing. But you can have a painter bard. No. Use your imagination, <laughs> damn it. Moving on. <laughs> Anywho. I'm, I'm just saying Andre Brower's character was a lawyer. Yeah. And Punisher's character was a painter. A painter. And given right. the choice on who is going to be in charge, your options at that point were, again, bag boy, painter, or lawyer. And I know which boat I'm getting in. That's all I'm saying. Well, I mean, the, the whole thing breaks down to the three basic teams. You have those of, you know. I said the basic teams. Painter, bag boy, <laughs> and lawyer. Those are the logic, three major archetypes. Have, religion, have you ever read Cosmos? Not Cosmos. Uh, logic, religion, and realist is the way I'd go. Hold on, hold on. I say something Red, bad like about logic. artists, we're fine. He said on one side, realist, and the other side, religion. And I'm the one who's in trouble? Hey, religion's fine as long as you don't like turn into a cult. Which this does very much. <laughs> Which so. this very oh, yeah, much very does. quickly. Miss Carmody has come to the conclusion that this is the end of days, that this is God's wrath come to cleanse the land and all the sinners. 
and that the only way to appease things is through blood sacrifice. So expiation, expiation. She is more than happy to start throwing people out the door to appease the Lord. Blood sacrifice is a pretty big fucking jump, too. I mean, even for church folks. <laughs> hey, you know, it's it's it depends which book, Old Testament or New Testament. Old Testament, you know, they're always looking for blood. And mind you, it's usually goats. <laughs> There's still only one blood sacrifice, and it doesn't even actually happen. It was Abel. <laughs> That's not a sacrifice. That's a murder. Yeah, it was. The, the... <laughs> anyway, anyway, anyway. It was a preemptive sacrifice. I've always loved that interpretation of Cain and Abel is that, you know, Abel went and gave of his land and Cain was asked to give of his most loved thing. And so he took out his brother. <laughs> <laughs> like, ooh, I like that. Look, all I'm saying is that when it comes to fighting mutant spiders, I'm just not following the painter. That's all. <laughs> Yeah, and the mutant spider sequence comes up in the pharmacy sequence. Yes. So one of the guys gets burnt while they're dealing with the giant birds that break into the place. Because he's incompetent. And they have to get him uh, antibiotics. Because everybody in this is bad at everything. <laughs> they're not really trained for this moment, Jake. <laughs> How much training do you need to light a mop head on fire without lighting yourself on fire? Uh, given this, they cut back to like Lori Holden trying to light that mop that Tom Jane's holding. There's like five cuts of her like, just like, come on, damn it. Like, all right. Mm -hmm. The only one who's good at anything is Frances Steerhagen. When she makes a blowtorch, fucking shit burns. Yeah. Yep. I think the key here is, is that I think they do a actually a pretty good job of showing that under stress, people don't do well. <laughs> like every, every plan falls apart in the face of the enemy. I will give you that. And they spend a lot of time, like, they see this these people wrapped up in these webs, and they're like, yeah, let's stick around. And nope. <laughs> no, no, no. Let's be fair here. Once they notice the webs, they start packing up and getting out. The problem is... No, they don't. They go up to the guy and try to free the guy, who's clearly just gone. Well, no, he's not clearly gone until they open his shirt up, and you see the bubbling pustules of eggs that are all over his chest. Yeah, and then he falls off from the wall and he turns into a spawn point from Diablo where he just Oh, it was amazing! <laughs> explodes into all these mini games, all these, like, one-shot Tiny spiders, yeah. Yep. I did not care for that. The minute he exploded and there were, like, a thousand of those damn things in the ground, I no longer thought it reasonable that anyone got out there alive. <laughs> There's no way you survive that kind of, you know, fast, overcoming enemy. It's like Zerg Swarm. Yeah. <laughs> You know how I know I would have survived this? Because the second you saw somebody wrapped up in what looked like spiderweb, there would have been two mists. The one outside, <laughs> and then the fucking vapor trail that I left. In the shape of me slowly dissipating into the other mist. That I believe. That I believe. Uh, like Kermit, I would have been gone with the Schwinn instantly. <laughs> I even have it in my mood. Oh, Jake must have loved this pharmacy scene. My note is, old lady flamethrower was fun, rest of scene sucked ass. <laughs> <laughs> when I saw this in theaters, there were people who actually got up and left during this sequence. It's very disturbing. This was by far the most effective sequence for the folks in theaters. Yeah. There were folks who were like, yeah. My favorite part of the pharmacy sequence was the lead into it. So they're going there, yeah, they've got a member of the group who's been burned. They're trying to get salve for him and then any other items they could possibly get and also Pain to help way out of here. Yep. yep. And also kind of start as finding a way uh, route out of there. But the setup for it is Thomas Jane is talking to his son and he's promising his son. He's, oh, don't worry, pal. I'm going to bring you back some comic books. And the kid says, I don't want them. And I can't tell if that's a testament to how bad the situation is or if it's 
a commentary on how bad comics were in 2007. <laughs> where it's like, well, we'll bring back some comics. They replaced 52 with Countdown. I know Dan Diddy was calling it 52 done right, but it's it's awful. Oh, yeah, but you, you like Batman, don't you, pal? Grant Morrison's writing Batman. I don't understand the Black Glove storyline at all. I have no idea who Zarin R is, Danny. Oh, okay, okay, pal. I'll, I'll get to some Marvel comics. They kill Captain America after Civil War, Danny. Well, yeah, but Ed Brubaker's still writing it, so it must be pretty good. I guess so. Yeah, but the comics you went to get were all right. It was like Hellboy. And- it was all Dark Horse stuff. Yeah, it was Hellboy. Initially, and, uh- it was going to be Punisher comics, and apparently Tom Jane said, yeah, fuck that. I had a dispute with the producers. Yep. <laughs> so yeah, so it's all it's all Dark Horse. It's Hellboy, Conan, the Goon. The Goon, that's what I was looking yep. for. Yusagi Yojimbo, and then the one I didn't recognize initially was Criminal Macabre, which is I looked up and it is written by Steve Niles, who was Thomas Jane's co-writer on a book he did called Bad Planet. Yeah. Which I didn't get a chance to read for the pod, but funnily enough, is also about people battling freaky spider creatures. So I definitely want to get that checked out. But yeah, they grabbed a Hellboy specifically because apparently Tom Jane is friends with Rump Herman. Yeah. And hey, look, it was a good selection of comic books. Might have been the best thing in the movie. Yeah, that was a hell of a spinner act. Yeah. Well, of course, none of those things exist on spinner racks and pharmacies, but we won't get into that. <laughs> now, one of the biggest problems with Brent, uh, Captain Holt, <laughs> for, the, for, for Jake, uh, leaving is he took... Look, a- I remember their names. I just refuse to acknowledge them. <laughs> the problem with him leaving is he took a fair amount of the level-headed individuals with him, leaving the remainder sorely outnumbered against the growing clergy <laughs> not clergy um uh cultists cultists that are, are forming under Carmody. to be fair they get half of the biker back <laughs> <laughs> which was one of my another one of my favorite sequences yeah it was them just the simplicity of it with the one of the problems that the movie runs into is i think they try and do too much with their budget and some of the effects are a little bit ropey which works better in the black and white version which we'll probably get to towards the end so just the simplicity of the sequence when they tie the rope to the biker dude and he's walking out and then they're pulling on it and it comes back and it's liquid blood. Little things like that I thought made for some of the more effective sequences. In it. Great. Also that it goes up. That was yeah. great. It was just Frank Darabont and some grips who apparently were on a lift and basically playing tug of war with the actors. Which it's funny because it there's a similar scene in a movie that we're eventually going to talk about called The Endless that has a very similar effect. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. And yeah. it's just as good. That's fantastic. That might have been another part I liked it because it reminded me of The Endless, which is a much better movie than this. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so you end up with these camps, you know, and it comes to a head fairly quickly when they get to the point where you know they're going, which is where the zealots want to sacrifice the kid, mm-hmm. which was inevitable. First, they sacrifice the Sam Witwer character, which, again, was an addition, apparently. So there was some semblance of precedent for the threat that's then put against the kid. All the while, Miss Carmody just slugging down milk from a glass bottle. And, like, the whole reason they need to believe her is because of the fly. Yeah. It is important to mention that the kid is not the first attempted sacrifice. The very first sacrifice, I believe, was uh, Private Jessup. He was the first successful sacrifice, yeah. Right. Because they accuse him of knowing what was going on, being a part of Project Arrowhead, causing it, and they stab him and then carry him out and throw him out the door, mm-hmm. where he is quickly accepted <laughs> as the second yeah like i said an arena monster from attack of the clones comes out and grabs <laughs> but all of that does lead to probably i keep saying this but maybe my favorite part of the movie which is toby jones solving the problem 
<laughs> yeah, so we get the sequence with Mrs. Carmody, who's calling for expiation again, is whipping everyone up into a frenzy and tells her followers, you know, we want the boy. And it's at this point that Thomas Jane's character, David Drayton, has kind of assembled this small group of folks who are going to try and make a break for it, basically. And as they're trying to get out, Carmody intercepts. Everyone's starting to converge on him. And Mrs. Carmody is shouting expiation and getting everyone put up into a frenzy. And all of a sudden, blam, the glass milk bottle shatters. And Mrs. Carmody is taking a shot to the gut. Pops one more in her and over she goes. Double tap. Yep. Like any good zombie movie. Just to be safe. And it, in terms of like how Frank Darabont went with Dimension because they let him you know, do the things he wanted to do, I kind of wonder like if he had gone to one of the bigger studios, if they would have had to have wanted like a Dirty Harry-esque quip in that point where like, no, you got to have Ollie say something when he shoots Mrs. Carmody. Because as he does, he doesn't really say anything. He just has this quiet line where he says to Thomas Jane, he said, I wouldn't have done it if I didn't have to. And Thomas Jane says, yeah, that's why I'm thanking you, buddy. Um, oh, yeah, pal. <laughs> as a supermarket worker, he is an essential worker. <laughs> you don't fuck with essential workers. Ollie is, yes, the most essential. Shout out to all the essentials out there. Which is so upsetting for what comes next. But when Ollie plugs her, I do wonder if another student said, now you got to give Ollie like a Dirty Harry-esque quip. Like, you know, he plugs her in the head and big close up on Ollie with furrow brasses. And God said, let there be lead. <laughs> <laughs> or the alternate version was instead of having Ollie shoot her, it's Mrs. Carmody standing going, expiation, expiation. All of a sudden, a can of peas flies in from off screen and just lodges <laughs> in Mrs. Carmody's skull. Like her head, their forehead just explodes with this can of peas. And Mrs. Carmody topples over and it cuts. And you see Mrs. Leppler, who's just got a bandolier of pecans. And she has the line where she sits there and squints in the camera and says, peas be with you. <laughs> and then there's it cuts to a crowd shot and everyone's silent. And there's a beat of silence. And then Bill Sadler goes, and also with you. <laughs> That's how I kind of wanted this movie to end, was I just wanted Mrs. Leppler to go outside with a shitload of peas and, like, face down that monster that took down Sam Witwer, and she just does the Charles S. Dutton from Alien 3, where she just kind of slowly takes the glasses off. <laughs> you motherfucker! <laughs> God will take care of you now, sister! <laughs> oh, man, that would have been much better. They could also have given Toby Jones the uh, the line from uh, that golf movie with Adam Sandler. Uh, Happy Gilmore? Happy Gilmore, because it's a supermarket, man. The price is wrong, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so then they go outside, and then he immediately dies. Pretty quickly. Yep, Ollie immediately dies, but he's still useful to the end because he drops the gun. Yep, yep. drops it. He opens the doors on the car, looks around, where is everybody? I'm the only one who did the right thing, and then zoop. He is punished for it. He's punished for competence. Yep. <laughs> so they all get in the car, and David realizes the gun is still in the hood, and he decides to risk it. Hops out, grabs the gun just in time before a spider nabs him. Hops in the car, and they drive off. Mm -hmm. yep. And they drive for a while. They go down the I-295, heading towards Portland. and it's just Never think to try and get gas somewhere. <laughs> they just drive until the car starts with no plan. And then they develop a new plan. <laughs> yeah and here we get well the, real quick the, the behemoth does walk over them at one point at this point it's, yeah it's, the mo it's most, so cool it's so much fun yeah they first pass by david drayton's house confirm that his wife is dead then keep yep. driving and then we get to the divergence point we get to the point where the novella ends which is yep. with the behemoth you know this thing beyond size beyond comprehension that's stalking over top of them yep and from what i recall yeah that's where the story ends and it Correct. ends with them saying 
well, we're going to keep driving until we run out of gas. And depending on what happens, we got a gun with four bullets in it. And apparently that line specifically was in the story, but that's just kind of where it leaves. And Well, they also get the message that says Hartford. Oh, do they? I forgot about that. Yeah. So there's a radio message that says, come to Hartford. We're holding up here. We're making it through. Which would have been the first good thing about Hartford ever. <laughs> if I remember correctly, the book ends with them uh, out of gas and going, well, we could do this, or we could do this, or we could do this. And the very last line is, but in the end, all of that involves us getting out of the car. And that's where it ends, is them debating what the hell they're going to do, even though the minute they get out of the car, you know, they're probably screwed. And then the movie continues. Yeah, so Frank Garabont decided to take it up a notch. Oh. So the movie continues with them running out of gas. Five people in the car at this point, including Thomas Jane and his son. And counts the bullets and five people in the car, four bullets in the gun. And Laurie Holden has the line, says, well, what about you? And Thomas Jane says, I'll think of something. And sure enough, cuts to this exterior shot. And you just see four muzzle flashes of four bullets going off. And then it cuts to Thomas Jane, who's just in absolute agony over having to commit this horrifying act and presumably also permanently deaf (laughs) from firing four gunshots in a car with the windows up. Not the only time firing guns in an enclosed space, but not deafening a person comes up in this episode. (laughs) I am thankful that everything is off camera. So that's nice. Yeah, it was very well done. Yes, I did not need to see him shoot a small child. (laughs) (laughs) He gets out of the car (laughs) (laughs) and he's clearly ready to welcome the monsters in death. You know, he's just, he's done after what he just had to do. He is just not ready to continue anymore. And so he waits and then back the way they came, which makes this so much worse (laughs) back from the way they came, the mist starts to part and in comes the military just kind of like flamethrowering egg nests and shooting random things in the woods, cleaning up basically. And they come to him to see if he's okay. And he's just kind of falls to his knees, a broken man Mm -hmm. as a truck comes by that has a woman who left early in the film. Okay. Yeah. Melissa McBride, who was a local actor who auditioned for this, got the part. And yeah, she has a sequence early on where she's trying to get someone to get some folks to go with her so she can go home and and get to her kids. No one will. And she says, you know, to hell with all of you. And she walks out and should be mentioned one of the absolute best sequences in the film. She is amazing in that one scene she had. Mm -hmm. She was on Walking Dead for years, right? Yes. Yeah. I stopped watching after season one, but it was I guess it was, again, the Frank Darabont connection where she ended up getting a role on that show. And I guess she was on it for multiple seasons. But at this point, she hadn't done a ton. And apparently when she did her sequence in this movie and finished it, the rest of the cast just broke into applause because it was like, holy shit. It was breathtaking. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's really I felt the movie was very devastating towards the end because it's, you know, if they had gone with her, they might have had a better chance. If they had just based on where the mist was parting from, if they had just actually worked together and stayed in the store properly instead of being just kind of like complete fools. That might have worked. There's so many ways that things could have been better, but even trying their best, they just falls apart and he's forced to do this terrible, terrible thing. Yeah. And they were originally going to have everybody from the supermarket on one of those buses. Yep. Mm-hmm. But they couldn't get him back for reshoots. Oh, that been so much worse. Oh, my God. <laughs> Bill Sadler in there just flipping him off as he goes by. Just uh, extra small Bill Sadler's character was interesting. He had this consistent habit 
that I saw through the film where he would be cocky. Like it starts off with him being cocky and I know what's going on. Oh wait, I'm wrong. I'm going to immediately fall in line with whoever was right. Yep. And then he's with them and he's, he's like, no, no, he's right. And this is the way it is. And then that goes wrong. He's like, whoop. And he immediately falls in line with whoever was right. You know, it's whoever was the last one, right? 100% got their back. You know, yeah. he, he has no consistency or self drive really throughout over half the movie. He's just like, you got it. Yep. And as far <laughs> as we know, he lived. So, you know, sometimes being a follower instead of a leader painter is the right choice. <laughs> <laughs> Mechanic wins out over painter in this case. I mean, like very much like I felt very similar to like The Walking Dead. There, there's this consistent thing where it's like, yes, you have these people doing good things. And yes, you have these people doing bad things. But at the end of the day, it's life. And sometimes things just go sideways. You know, things just go wrong. Mm. And there's no real moral to it. It's just roll the dice and hope for the best was what I got from it. Very Japanese horror movie outcome. Yes. I just I part of my problem with the ending was because I had such trouble buying into most of the actions from everybody during the movie on any kind of emotional level, when, when the end happens, it's supposed to be this huge gut punch and intelligently, like, you know, on an intellectual level, yes, I understand why this is horrible, but emotionally, I just didn't buy into any of the relationships. So it was just kind of like, okay. I mean, theoretically, this is awful, but it doesn't, it didn't work for me, I guess. I wanted it to, but it just... I figured your big problem with the ending would be the fact that it faces the black on Thomas Jane screaming, and you don't get that flash forward where it fades back up and you see him in grief counseling years later, just so you can see the grief hair. <laughs> <laughs> like, you were talking about his before I wait grief hair at the top of the episode. That was one kid. He just shot four people in the head in a car. Imagine the grief hair would at least be down to his knees. Yep. Yep. See, that's what you're not getting. Maybe this was a prequel to Before I Wake. Maybe Before I Wake is the sequel. Right. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was hoping is he'd be in a grief group with other like other Thomas Janes from other movies. <laughs> He's next to the Thomas Jane <laughs> from Before I Wake. <laughs> what are you in here for, pal? And, uh, my kid drowned in a tub. Uh, I shot my kid in the fucking face. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. You know. Grimy River, pal. <laughs> but to be fair, his wife blamed him, so, you know. Yeah. Also, Kurt, my Thomas Jane is apparently, like, dialed down Vince McMahon. Hey, pal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I look, I like Thomas Jane. I like so many people in this movie. I just, in the end, it didn't quite work on the levels I think it needed to for me. I feel the movie is not great. I will say that much. I did enjoy it, and I don't think it's as bad as you felt it was. I do feel some relationships were established and explored but no there could have been it could have gone deeper in multiple directions yeah good not great is what i would go with yeah i think it's very effective in some spots it benefits from some very good casting i would say so we're speaking of thomas jane i personally i off the top of my head i would say this is probably his best performance he's pretty solid uh <laughs> i don't think i can go with you there at least really? based on the expanse I haven't seen Expanse. Is he's he... very good in The Expanse. Oh, Expanse is so good. Okay. He's fantastic in The Expanse. But this is certainly the most range I've ever seen him do. And and the, the parts where he really has to dial it up to 11, you know, the ending and also the bit he has with his son where his son has the unfortunate foreshadowing for the ending where his son asks him, you know, promise not to let the monsters get me. He keeps the promise. You know, his acting in that sequence too. It's like, oh man, hey, Thomas Jane is, you know, I've always liked him, but this, I think, is probably the strongest I've seen him. It was good. I would say of the trilogy of movies where he has a dead kid, 
this is the strongest between this before I wake and Punisher. <laughs> I've not actually seen Punisher yet. I haven't watched Hung, but apparently he's very good in Hung. Yeah, I haven't seen Hung either. So I love him in The Expanse. And outside of that, he gives great dad. That's that's what he does, in my opinion. He is a buy your kid a race car bed dad. So I'll, I'll give you that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I will say I, before we, we tape this, I said, well, I'll watch an episode of the series and see what that's about. And, and the series, at least based on the one episode that I watched, makes this movie look like Casa fucking Blanca. <laughs> so I watched the whole season and I advise against it. It's so bad. It's so bad. Like it, it made me think more positively of the Dome series. Yep. And the Dome series was dog shit. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> Tell me how you really feel, Jake. <laughs> I try to. I don't try to be subtle with my opinions. I think. I will say this, though. When I was going through some of the trivia and some of the, uh, the bibs and bobs about this film, I found out that the game Half-Life was really inspired by the original story the novel i can mm. easily see that makes a lot of sense and it was one of the primary influences for the show in fact the first game in the series was originally be called quiver which is a reference to the arrowhead project oh nice nice so i i will say half-life might be the best movie that came out of the mist book <laughs> <laughs> i would agree with that statement i would agree with that statement such a good game or at least half-life 2 did anybody watch the black and white version no, from what I heard, it was the same movie. No, because I had to rent this from Amazon and I didn't want to pay twice for a movie I didn't like. <laughs> That's fair. I, I picked up the Blu-ray. It's the exact same edit. Darabont originally, like his ideal version of the movie would have been black and white, which obviously is a difficult sell with studios, but they were just able to do a post-conversion of the color palette the same way the Coens did for um, The Man Who Wasn't There. And so they just put it as this bonus on the Blu-ray. And it's interesting to watch. I mean, it's ostensibly it's the same film, but it does give it a bit of a different feel and it gives it more of this, you know, old timey throwback, which Darabont mentions that one of the things that Stephen King was inspired by in writing it were these old Bird Eye Gordon horror films from the 50s and 60s, which is what he was paying homage to. One of the thing it helps with is with the special effects, which, again, I think their reach exceeded their grasp a bit on what they tried to do with CGI. The black and white version helps that a little bit just not having all the different colors to it. And one of the things that's beneficial is particularly the sequence with the birds that kind of come in through the, the front windows of the grocery store. The way they animate them, they kind of do them at this frame rate that's pretty similar to the same frame rate Ray Harryhausen would use for stop-motion skeletons and shit like that back in the day. So that sequence has this very kind of old-timey stop-motion-y feel. So I, I would say I, the black and white version, I think, edges out the color version, but just slightly. It seems like it would bring out sort of the campiness and make it feel more like a Twilight Zone episode versus a mediocre mid-budget horror film. It's not going to, if you didn't like it to begin with, you're not going to suddenly like it. It's not revolutionary. But if it's a movie that you already like and you have seen it, but you haven't seen it in black and white, then yeah, check out the black and white version. It's pretty interesting. And I want to read another bit of trivia from IMDb uh, that I read because it made me laugh out loud which was The Mist, 2007. The flamethrower at the end was constructed by the effects department out of parts purchased at Home Depot, which frightened Frank Darabont on all kinds of levels. <laughs> I just enjoyed that. Doesn't really add much. You figured it wasn't a real flamethrower, but no, it turns out that the effects department is dangerous. <laughs> 
So yeah, so our first uh, movie I think really sells the fact that when you have some sort of contagion or mist or pandemic outside, stay the fuck inside. And uh, if you can hold up well enough and work together with the people with you, you're going to turn out just fine. Let's see how that works for our next movie. I would say the lesson I got out of it is in the apocalypse, don't follow painters, lawyers, or religious people. I'm just going to call this episode Jake Hates Artists. I don't hate artists. <laughs> Jake hates everybody. <laughs> I love Toby Jones Man of Action Toby Jones is great You know who else I really like is Stephen McHattie Yes Stephen McHattie is the man And that brings us to our next movie, Pontypool Yep, one year later, Pontypool. 2008 Pontypool. 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 Pontypool What does it mean? Which, uh, I want to say again, thank you, thank you, thank you, Eric, for our intro today Which two people will get the reference <laughs> Yeah, if anybody hasn't seen the movie, you might be a little confused, but it, it is a wonderful re-imaging of the opening audio from the movie, and it, I I love this film. I absolutely enjoy this film way more. I've seen it before, and I was happy to watch it again. Didn't we watch it all together once? No, I... Um, I know you and I did. Was it just you and I watched it? Okay. It might have yeah, been. Think, it might have been a horror yeah. weekend, but I don't... I feel like it we been watched one it at my Mitz. house or my apartment or something. I... I could be imagining that. No, that feels right. But anyway, this movie is from 2008 and was brought to us by Maple Pictures Corporation, which was the distribution arm of Alliance Films. It was actually formed in 2005 when Lionsgate demerged to two companies, Lionsgate Entertainment and Maple Pictures. Wouldn't know they're Canadian by the name. No. That's correct. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> well, the whole story for this actually takes place in Ontario, if I recall correctly. Yeah. Yeah, because the, the constant references to the Ontario Police Department they referred to as the OPP, which I thought might give you guys an oddity prodigy production. <laughs> I was enjoying that immensely. I adore this movie, and I, I had such fond memories of it. I was excited to watch it again. I, always a little trepidatious because, especially with horror movies, sometimes when you watch them the second time, they, they don't give you the same spine tingle that they did the first time you know that you know what's coming but it's been long enough in this one that i'd forgotten most of the major beats like the the cheap jump scare at the beginning got me again yep when the woman slaps his car oh did it yep Yep. yeah because he has to stop the car to pick up his phone and she just comes out of the darkness and wham but i'll i'll say this i i adored it the second time maybe even more than i did the first time wow okay i love everything about i like stephen mccaddy to begin with yes like i watched um the october faction just because he was supposed to be on it and he's on it for a grand total of like 25 minutes and i still watched eight episodes of that fucking show just on the prompt <laughs> the promise of a little bit of stephen mccaddy it doesn't hurt that part of me has always thought that i was born too late and that my dream job would have been a radio dj like a music dj and I could see myself being a borderline alcoholic asshole like <laughs> like Grant Massey, like Grant Massey, even down to the cowboy hat, because I have an affectation for nice hats. <laughs> yeah, the setup for this is Stephen McCaddy plays Grant Massey, a shock jock who it's implied he came from a more metropolitan area initially that he was fired from. I don't think they specifically say where. And now he's been relegated to shock jock on the... I think it's 6660-CLSY. The Beacon yeah. is the name of the, st- the radio station, which is in the basement of a church. Yep. 660. 660. Because it wasn't 666, because I had to rewind and double check that. Yeah, which is in the basement of a church in Pontypool, Ontario. Which was Pont de Flock. Like, they explain that why they call it Pontypool. Or he, he does that in the beginning. In the opening, yeah. 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 
And in the opening of the movie, he's on his way to work berating his agent or associate of some kind. Yeah, his, his agent Rick. Yeah, who he tells to fuck off multiple, multiple times, times. The, uh, the opening of the film. So many times. When he comes to a stop and there is a woman who slaps her hands on his passenger side window and she's just repeating the word, I believe it's the word blood that she's saying over and over. I, I couldn't make so. it out. I, I, it's clear she's repeating. Yeah, just saying the single syllable word on loop and she then runs off. He calls after her. She's nowhere to be seen. So he just goes ahead and drives into work. Grabs himself a bottle of Glenfiddich to go with his coffee. Love it. And sits down and starts broadcasting. And then from there, it's the setup of the film is you're slowly being fed information on some kind of crisis that is transpiring in the broader city. And gets worse and worse as it goes. Mm -hmm. But you never really, you never leave the radio studio. No. You never go outside. You, you see people looking outside, but you're looking at them. Yep. So you never see beyond the studio in the movie. It's very much a bottle episode. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's an isolation. It's a horror movie about getting bits of information about some horrible thing going on, but not being an active participant in it, even although they end up with people coming into the studio later. Yeah. It's isolation on multiple levels, too, because there's the you can't leave. People shouldn't come in. And then you get to the point where you should even talk to people. Yes. But we'll get to that. At least in English. At least in English. And the bulk of the audio in it is technically being broadcast, like yep. most of the even the dialogue between characters, since it's so much of it is set within uh, Steve McCaddy's booth. And you know, most of the dialogue is actually just being broadcast live. In fact, they turn this into a radio drama, which is available as an extra feature on the DVD. And it's basically that that's it's audio isolated to Stephen McCaddy's booth. There's some of the audio outside of it, but it kind of trims the movie down. I think it's just under an hour, whereas the movie's like an, an hour and 25 minutes. Has anybody read the book? Not yet. No, not yet. I wanted to. Um, yeah, so the book's called Pontypool Changes Everything, and I guess there's a lot more to it because originally this was envisioned as being the first installment of ideally three movies, I think was the plan. So presumably there's a lot more material in the book, but the person who did write the book, Tony Burgess, did do the screenplay for this and also has a cameo as the lead singer of Lawrence and the Arabians, oh the, my uh, God. the local acapella the group. The most racist group of it's singers so I've ever racist. seen. Oh my God. Yeah, Tony is the titular Lawrence, and there is they are all painted up in very offensive makeup and dress. The one guy has a belt of ammo and a Uzi in his hand, for Christ's sakes. It's the most offensive thing. Oh, it hurt me to watch so bad. It's also the first direct evidence they have of something going on in the film because of the girl. She starts repeating herself. Yeah. So initially, you're just getting bits and pieces of audio from largely from Ken Loney in the Sunshine Chopper, which they reveal is actually his Dodge Dart with some sound effects overlaid into it. <laughs> and that Ken is not a good person. No, we find out later Ken is decidedly <laughs> oh, not a good person, which made me laugh. But initially, it sounds like there's just riots of some variety going on outside a doctor's office, which is Dr. Mendez. And then as more and more audio leaks in, you start to find out that this is an epidemic, but it's not a zombie epidemic in the traditional sense as we've seen them in most films. This is a zombie epidemic in which the path of contagion is linguistic. Yep. It's such a cool idea. Yeah. The words become contaminated. And when you understand the words, it's the understanding that matters. It infects you. And what, one of the parts of this I love the most was the explanation of why people are repeating the words. It's like, while people repeating the words is what people hear them and then they get infected and spread them as well. 
the reason they're repeating them is because their bodies are actively trying to make nonsense of the words. It's an autoimmune response. Mm -hmm. The repeating is to try to make nonsense of the words. I was like, that's brilliant. I love that concept. Yeah. And then as they repeat, the aggravation level of the autoimmune response escalates and escalates and escalates and basically kicks everyone into a destructive frenzy. Yep. First they're homicidal and then they're suicidal. There's this one great part, well, <laughs> awful part of the movie where they do the obituary section of the news, where they start doing obituaries of people actually dying in these riots and whatnot. And it's this chain of this guy killed this person before he was killed by this guy who killed someone else before he was killed by this guy. It was, it's just this chain of murder down the line. It was yeah, is really well done. Easily my least favorite part of the movie. Uh, the obituary, it, it was for me, well, it has this very jarring... Sorry. It's not on purpose, Nick. Is it because of the videos? It's the only thing I don't like. It's because they break the out to videos. They actually leave the basement for that scene. It's because it's the videos, and it's also because it's information that, realistically, they would not have. Respect. Respect. It's cool visually, and it's cool the way he does it, and it drives a point home. It just... The way everything else in the movie is so unbroken, it breaks that, and I, I just... To be fair... It does fit the overall concept of what this virus can do, but we'll get into that when we talk about the ending. The visual execution of it threw me initially, and I was like, well, that's an interesting choice. I don't know if I, I dig that or not, but then I got to the post-credit sequence, mm -hmm. which I don't think I had seen before. I don't think I actually watched it through the end of the credits initially, so that I was like, okay, that makes more sense now. I like the post-credit sequence. Tidbit for you, the post-credit sequence was not supposed to be post-credit. It was supposed to be the ending. Yeah. But people were so confused by it, they moved it to the post-credit. I feel these are very connected. I love the post-credit sequence and the way it's it goes fantastic. in color and black and white. and oh, ooh. Yeah, so that helps buoy the obituary sequence for me. It's like, okay, that does serve some semblance of a purpose. For me, it just it took me out of the movie. Not the post-credit sequence, the obituary sequence. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, it's one of the choices they made that I initially wasn't overly keen on. And one of them, too, is the use of score in this. The score's not bad. I think it's overdone. I think you could... I think the big function of the score in this is mainly so they have a means of escalation for the finale. Yes. Where they're really trying to ramp up and speed up something and have this sense of sustained tension in this very short window of time. But really, I think the majority of the film really would have just been more effective with just silence particularly since the movie is just driven by the engine of Stephen McCaddy's voice, and what a voice he has. He is perfect for a radio host. The voice mm -hmm. is just liquid gold. Yeah, I, I would have a hard time imagining other people that could have pulled this off mm -hmm. quite as well as he did. And it's mystifying to me. I mean, his, his voice is amazing, and in going back and rewatching it, it's kind of mystifying to me that they haven't turned basically every sequence of him in the booth into an animated GIF. Yeah. <laughs> like every expression he has in the booth, it was like, that should be a meme. That should be a meme. That should be a meme. It's yeah. Particularly the, the one Nick's expression just now was of him coming up from when he ducks underneath the table and comes Stop! up. Oh so yeah. Like, when oh, you see yeah. That, like, that crazed look at his face. Oh, I love that scene. Yeah. His, his expressions are priceless in this. If we can, we'll probably turn a lot of them into tweet fodder for our Twitter feed. I will say this. The only person I could envision doing this besides Stephen McCaddy would be American Stephen McCaddy and Lance Henriksen. Ah, yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. See, it's funny you mentioned that. So like we mentioned, this movie's set in Canada and talked before about 
it, just discussions we've had outside the pod before and talking about certain films from other countries that are getting like remakes, like The Wailing, the Korean movie was licensed for an American remake. That's not actually going to happen, though, right? Uh, I haven't heard anything about it in a while. So and like you, most of the time I'm like, oh, you don't need to do an American remake or something. Just just leave it. But this is the rare occasion where I do wish they would actually do a U.S. based remake of it because I like the concept. The Canadian version of a shock jock is still too classy. Like I want <laughs> the American remake by the American concept of like a Southern shock jock. Welcome to Jimmy Butthole in the taint on WFRTS, the station that stinks. <laughs> Where it's just this crude ass like redneck. But instead of being like terms of endearment that are the infected words, it's like juvenile, like butts, butts. Titty, butt. <laughs> and it's people just trying to go butt, butt, and just making fart noise. <laughs> you could call it poopy pool. It would be great. Because <laughs> I like that Steve McCaddy, who's supposed to be this brass shock jock, it was like, he's still pretty classy by U.S. standards. <laughs> At one point in the film, uh, Dr. Mendez breaks into the station. He's escaped the riot and the crowds, and he's shown up to the radio station. And he is the exposition, really, for what is going on on the viral level. So the one technician, Laurel, gets locked out of the booth. Sydney, Dr. Mendez, and Grant are in the sound booth hiding from her because she's clearly become infected. She starts repeating herself, starts ramming her head against the glass. Mr. Mazzy's missing. Yeah. And then Dr. Mendez starts kind of narrating what's going on. He's like, she doesn't know it yet, but she's hunting us. And it's like, ooh, ooh. <laughs> and it's true because she's clearly looking for them and trying to talk to them. And apparently, not only is it affecting how they say and act, but also sound becomes very important to them. He says, if she can't hear us, she may lose track of us. And it's true. She starts leaving them alone after a while. But she keeps cycling back. Yep. And she just and it's just really unnerving progression where it starts with her kind of just staring at them talking. And then it's like blood from her mouth, clearly repeating stuff through the window. You can't hear her, but she's just repeating herself through the window with blood through her mouth. And then she goes to like... What, eats some electrical equipment or something and like tears her mouth open yeah first she starts banging into the just kind of slamming into the glass repeatedly and that's when mendez has long says she's rooting for voices this will grow vicious and then he pops some food in his mouth like popcorn <laughs> so she repeats that for a bit yeah and then she goes in the back and starts eating a radio wire because you can see the sparks come off and when she comes back she's basically got a part of her lips have been a joker have been yeah, yeah split off and burned away yeah one of the things I like is he's got one of my favorite lines in the movie there where he's talking about it and he says, if it found its way into language, it could find its way into reality. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's the key. That is actually true and quintessential to the movie for the ending and for uh, my argument, the obits, is that it does actually start shaping reality. But it's important to note that he says it here, but it doesn't actually kick in until the end. Another thing is interesting, it's not all words that are infected. While it's only the English language that, that is clearly has a viral strain, it's mostly terms of endearment and rhetorical discourse is what they That's say. That's why honey the cat's important, because honey's a term of endearment. I didn't realize that the first time around. Mm -hmm. Like, I caught that the second time, because I'm slow. <laughs> <laughs> but it also gives one of the, the fact that it's English gives two of the theories. One of the theories that this was released by Canadian separatists which is something the BBC <laughs> caller brings up. Yep. Nice. But there's also that message, the one in French, which is, you know, about avoiding the English language, avoiding terms of endearment, rhetorical questions. And then it just says, and don't translate this. Do not translate this message. That's where he's read the entire thing on air. 
Yeah, that bit works particularly well when you're just doing the radio drama version of it. When you're listening to see McKetty and all of a sudden there's this loud blast of static and this French voice comes in and then they translate it back and you get that button of a last line that don't translate this. And it's like, ooh, that's particularly effective when it's just audio. Yep. I'll say this. One of the, the kind of trippy things is I watch this on YouTube because it's not available for streaming anywhere, but I guess iTunes. But the version I watched it on YouTube had, they were either Portuguese or Spanish subtitles. So watching a movie about the English language being an infection with subtitles in a language you can't read, <laughs> especially in the scenes where they start speaking French to each other. Mm-hmm. Nice. It was a little trippy. It was, it was, it was the right way to watch this movie because it kind of heightened everything. Nice. So, yeah. Yeah. So eventually at one point the crowd breaks into the station. Yeah. And then it becomes a little more typical zombie. A little bit, but they use the loudspeakers to get them back out. Well, almost all of them. Sydney Breyer is alive. Exactly. Yeah. I love that message. I, I love everything about what they do with language, the way this kind of zombie thing works. I love how much they build the just creep factor in this without going over the top the ending is not as good as the build-up but it's still pretty good i thought Hmm. yeah it loses me a little bit towards the end but it's still generally solid well at the end they try to inoculate people yeah with the the idea of basically changing the inherent meaning or changing your conception of the meaning of a word kisses kill kisses Kisses kill. kill My favorite one of that is once they figure out that if you can convince someone briefly that the definition of a word is different and they have a different comprehension of the word, they start doing this broadcast to try and see if they can make this work to the broader populace. And they do this call and response where he'll throw out a word. Uh, Great Mazzy's in the booth. He'll throw out a word. And the character of Sydney, Sydney, who's played by Lisa Hull, who is his actual wife, which I didn't realize. Oh, I didn't know that. Nice. Yeah, they're married. That's great. Made the makeout scene later a little less uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) Even if there was scotch involved, yeah. (laughs) But they have this call and response where he'll say a word and she'll say a word back just to kind of do this nonsense reassociation and and change the definition. But one of them is he calls out the word savage and she responds with sausage, which is the best band name ever. (laughs) If it's not taken, savage sausage. I don't know if that's the best band name ever because even in this, when she's writing the note, on the, the door when they're locked in the room, there's a poster, and the band's name is Hyena Dog Robbery. <laughs> I missed that. <laughs> Which turns out is a real Toronto-based band. Nice. Uh, did you buy their album, too, like you did the band that is referenced in Dr. Sleep? I didn't buy their album, but I did listen to them a little, and they are not to my taste. <laughs> But I still like that they used a real band in it. That's awesome. You know, a real Canadian band, which is, you know, pretty much like a real band. But they get us in trouble in Canada. <laughs> So the ending, as it's theatrically released, is basically they're in the booth and you hear this kind of French countdown and everything goes dark. I feel with the way they edited that, it really feels like they ended up getting bombed. And Yeah, they give you the Return of the Living Dead ending. Exactly. Yeah. And then you hear this radio play about how like some people were actually starting to feel better towards the end, like it was working. But then also it's starting to spread again as well. And they're doing their best to try to keep it contained. Mm-hmm. And then you get the very non sequitur ending at the end now here's the fun thing so i'm going to talk about some of the theories i read about and then i'll talk about what the interview with the author said about it the one fun theory i really liked was someone online said why is this scene at the end what is this i don't understand and someone says it's a non sequitur it's unconnected 
It doesn't matter. It completely causes a lack of understanding of the situation, which in effect inoculates you from the movie. I was like, that's brilliant. That's awesome. I love that idea. I was like, oh, the idea that careful, this movie could affect you. We're going to fix this by putting this thing at the end. That's completely nonsensical. I was like, that's a brilliant notion. But then I heard it was originally supposed to be before the credits and it was an actual ending. And the idea was that bombing or not, however you want to frame that, Sydney and Grant survived and that the bug still kind of exists, but it's reshaped reality. It, like they said it could, that reality has changed for them, that this is the new reality. And that another neat approach to it I read somewhere was, if you look at it, they're black and white while they're being kind of nonsensical talking. And once they start getting the serious talking, things go solid color and they're like, okay, now we got to go. Like the idea being that you need this kind of nonsensical back and forth that you can only really understand with a true partner or relationship, but it's still kind of nonsensical. But once you start getting into any sort of serious conversation, you know, you're risking understanding, solid understanding, and therefore reinfection or re-upping it. So you need to stop and, and move on. That I thought was just brilliant. Yeah. The idea that it, it has not only shaped reality to a bit, like they said, but it's also the way you have to interact with people now in this infested world has completely changed the way you talk and interact with people. Like this is the way you survive now in this environment. Yeah, I dug that. One way or the other, I'm just glad we got the line, then we steal the loot and knock boots in the free world, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Which, you know, obviously they understand each other, but is nonsense is why it's safe to say. So I thought that was cool. That was was really nice. It's it's an amazing change of pace and style and and flavor on the end of this very different film. But it works. Yeah, I, I thought it worked. Like I said, I loved everything, just about everything about this movie. I love that particular ending and, and that final theory, the one with the black and white to color to black and white as they're getting close to being infected and uninfected. Mm. And I like that uh, I read a quote from the author, Burgess, about them not being zombies, but called conversationalists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice. He wrote about the virus. So what he said was there are three stages to this virus. The first stage is you might begin to repeat a word. Something gets stuck. And usually it's words that are terms of endearment like sweetheart or honey. The second stage is your language becomes scrambled and you can't express yourself. The third stage, you become so distraught at your condition that the only way out of the situation you feel as an infected person is to try and chew your way through the mouth of another person. Oh, nice. Oh, I got to read this book. I love this guy. <laughs> the movie is so smart. He's written- other movies too he's written um movies called uh hellmouth the hexecutioners so he's he's definitely been doing other horror movies he's got one they're doing right now called dreamland which is the same director bruce mcdonald and i think steve mccaddy's in that too so that'll definitely be one to check out yeah it, it makes me want to read the book i'm curious to read the book and see what's going on with that did you like the snow crash appearance in the uh the movie as well snow crash appearance I love Snow Crash. What are you referring to? I missed it the first time around. It's the sequence right as Mazzy's reading the obituaries, and it kind of segues out of that, and it cuts to the sequence with Laurel Ann and Sydney, and Laurel Ann is wrapping Sydney's wound. The trade paperback copy of Snow Crash oh. is sitting in the foreground with the spine out, so you can see it's just this. Nice. And which I love There's that. There's a story. bit in Snow Crash about language. Yes. Yeah. Yes, very much so. Huh. So good. Snow Crash. Oh, that's interesting. Snow Crash is thick. It's, it's a thick read, but it's worth every page. 
And yeah, Pontypool, probably one of the more obscure or semi-obscure titles that we're going to cover today. But yes, we if you haven't seen it, we all definitely recommend it. Yeah, absolutely. Yep, 100%. It's one of the best, let's say, zombie movies I've ever seen. For lack of a better category, it's a zombie film, yeah. And for me, it's got the special kind of connotation because I do like stories about DJs. <laughs> and I like, especially washed up DJs. <laughs> Well, but there's a reason, and part of it is, well, one, I liked radio. I knew a DJ growing up that worked for big rock and roll stations. But one of the artists that my dad turned me on to was Harry Chapin. And he's got a song called W-O-L-D, which is about a fading radio DJ who bounces around town to town. And whenever I see this movie, I think of that song, and I think of Harry Chapin. Nice. It's just, it's it's a cool connection. And for me, you know, somebody who fantasizes about dumb, weird shit like being a fading radio DJ, this movie ties into that. So on top of being a horror movie that I like and on top of being a really clever zombie movie and all the language stuff, you know, that I like, it's got that additional connection to me. So I, I just adore this film. One last word, just to cycle back to the obit section. Much like the end credit scene is actually supposed to be changed to new reality in the black and white scenes, one could argue that the obit scene was much of the same. It was like one of the first incursions of reality change due to the uh, language bug. Whatever makes you feel better about the bad part of the movie. <laughs> Just waiting for, for Eric to go, huh? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm glad that you enjoyed it, Nick. I, I always enjoy how much work you have to do to make the bad parts of movies good. <laughs> You don't have visuals, but he's shaking his head at me right now. And he's trying to kill me with mind bullets. <laughs> well, speaking of movies that have a rather hotly disputed segment of the movie, the next one we're coming up on is, flash forwarding eight years later, is 10 Cloverfield Lane. Yay. I love this movie. Brought to you by Paramount Viacom, who uh, brought us A Quiet Place, Event Horizon, and Overlord, and also Bad Robot, well known for Bad Robot, Super 8, Lost, and Castle Rock. And, of course, you know, the original Cloverfield. Yes. Which is a blood relative of this film, for J.J. Abrams. So, like, I I really liked Cloverfield. I loved the ad campaign, the viral stuff going into it. I enjoyed the movie. You know, everything about it really got into me. Like, it it really did the kind of things I like with movies. It made them creepy and different, and you had to find these clues. You know, Slusho and Slusho! all this stuff. And then it ended up being, a, it was a giant monster movie. And I love giant monster movies. So that it really clicked all my buttons. Can't miss, yep. yeah. So when we saw, I remember it being in the theater and seeing this trailer and thinking, well, this looks pretty good. And then seeing the name and almost having to get up and walk around before the main movie started because I was so excited, <laughs> which was only two months before it came out. They yeah. purposely kept the marketing very close to release. So it was a big old secret. Like They like keeping them secret up until just before they release them. Yep, shot him under a code name for this one. It was Valencia, which is tied to a sequence that was actually deleted from the film that I need to look up. Obviously, it's a very small cast and shot pretty cheap. It was a $15 million budget, brought in $72 million domestic and 110 worldwide. So certainly, even with marketing, made a good penny. It's a dynamite movie. Yep. I mean, I look, I'll, I'll tell you right up front, I adore this film. I love it. It's great on multiple levels because it really is like two or three films in one. And it's... Every second's worth it. So for folks who haven't seen it, so our main character in this one is a character by the name of Michelle, who's played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Who is amazing. I love her. And she's also was the only choice for the role. Was she? Yeah, they didn't consider anyone else. They wanted her and they got her. Perfect, because she's phenomenal. I mean, she's pretty much always terrific. 
She should be the only choice for every role. Pretty much. I think it's important to note with Michelle that one of my favorite, favorite things with this character is, is that she is always thinking. She's always working the problem. She is always moving. She does not hesitate. She is just this incredibly smart, driven, empowered individual. And I love everything about her. And Mary Elizabeth Winston was the perfect choice for this. And it sets that up right up front. It starts with her leaving her apartment and then leaving a, an engagement ring. Yeah, it starts with a silent sequence of her leaving in a hurry, and as she leaves, the camera tracks and follows her out, and you see an engagement ring lying on the counter. And then as she's driving away, she's on the phone with her boyfriend, Ben, who's like, come back, and he sounds like a douchebag. He is voiced by Bradley Cooper! (laughs) Bradley Bradley Cooper! Cooper. (laughs) I didn't realize afterwards, so I had a note that said, Ben sounds just like a douchebag. I was looking through the cast later and I said, oh, it was Bradley Cooper. So my note now says, Ben sounds just like a douchebag. I wrote this note before I knew it was Bradley Cooper. <laughs> when you heard that big single that was playing from A Star is Born, you're like, Lady Gaga's fine. The guy sounds like a douchebag. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it adds to it. It's like she's decisive and she makes decisions and she does it. Yep. And she's smart about it, too. And everything she does has reason and purpose. It's well thought out. And then she gets driven off the road. Well, before that, she has a quick stop at a gas station, which seems very superfluous, except for two things. One, it's our Slusho cameo. It's a Slusho ad in the window. Which apparently goes back further than Cloverfield. Apparently that goes back to Alias. Yep. Which I didn't realize. I thought that was specifically a Cloverfield thing. No, it's it's been his baby for a while now. Also, the name of the gas station is Kelvin, Mm -hmm. which is an homage to his grandfather, Henry Kelvin. He tries to slip in the name in most of his films. Yeah, now that we've got the other Star Trek films, the alternate timeline they've got going, which is kind of the shorthand for it, is the Kelvinverse now. So. Yeah. So she stops at this uh, gas station, truck pulls up, the occupant of the truck does not get out, just sits there staring at her for a bit, making her decidedly uncomfortable. She gets in the vehicle, drives off, and then sees this same truck in the rearview mirror, ends up running her off the road. And then we get a rather terrifically done opening credit sequence. Because once she clears the roadside, they do this bit where there's a camera inside the car. And they actually had, when they shot it, the car was on a rig and Mary Elizabeth Winstead was in it. And this rig was actually doing multiple rotations. So as the car's flipping over, the camera's on the interior tumbling with her. And they intercut the cacophony of this car crash. And it'll cut to dead silence when it'll cut to a title card from the opening credit sequence. And seeing it in theaters was particularly effective going from loud to dead silence and back and forth. Agreed. I'm sure we saw this one together in theaters, right? Yes, we did. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I need to go back and rewatch it now because you got me doubting myself, but I was under the impression the truck that stops at the gas station with her is a different truck than the one that runs her off the road. Could be. I thought it was the same one, but... um, I'll double check later. Yeah. Yeah. The implication is that it's the same one. So car goes for a couple tumbles. We get the full title card to 10 Cloverfield Lane and then smash cut to Michelle waking up with her leg shackled to a metal bar. And she is in a nondescript rough hewn concrete room that is half painted pink with no idea where she is. It's very disconcerting. I cannot imagine waking up shackled like that. Yeah, her knee is in that brace that's connected mm-hmm. to the wall. Yeah, it's really and right off the bat. It shows you her level of ingenuity because her clothes and her phone and her things are out of reach. And she immediately assesses her environment and converts the uh, IV pole into a a reaching pole to grab her stuff and bring it in closer, where we immediately realize that wherever she's at, she has no service. 
which probably wouldn't work where she's at regardless, but it's also indicative of the situation that's going to be, we're going to be introduced shortly. Yeah, shortly after with the introduction of John Goodman as Howard Stambler, the person who constructed this shelter, this bunker, and who says he discovered Michelle on the side of the road and saved her and is now taking her back here to to care for her and keep her alive because shit on the outside is apparently not good. And he leaves her a pair of crutches and says, get used to these, and leaves her the key to the cuffs. Yep. And he doesn't tell her what's going on immediately. No. No, she says, what are you going to do with me? And he has this ambiguous line returned, which is, I'm going to keep you alive. And it's so unnerving. Yeah. Like, knowing what he meant after the fact doesn't change anything. The fact that in that moment, it's just like, that's the worst thing you could say, sir. I'm sorry. (laughs) John Goodman is terrific in this as a creepy weirdo. Yes. He does this amazing portrayal of this character who is clearly socially awkward and off and I would argue doesn't want to be a bad person, but (laughs) doesn't know how not to be. (laughs) Yeah, his performance keeps you off kilter throughout. Yeah. And buoyed by the fact that John Goodman is generally inherently likable. So it's one of those, well, I kind of want to like him because he's doing fucked up shit in this movie, but he's John Goodman, so I kind of want to like him. He always plays the sweetest characters, and this is so off role for him, and he does an amazing job with it. This is much closer to his character in Inside Lewin Davis than anything else I've seen him in. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Possibly his character in um, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? (laughs) The Cyclops. But it's, it's definitely in that family of John Goodman characters. Yeah. But he never, he never really gives you reason to feel sympathy for him he gets close a couple of times like when he's talking about his daughter but there's always something off yeah and then the movie gives you stuff to say yeah he's full of shit at least full of shit about what he's telling her but not necessarily about what's going on above ground there's only one time they do a great job with this because they maintain his consistency they maintain who he is but there's that one moment where he confesses to her that I need you to know that it wasn't just an accident. I ran off the road. And that whole exchange between them really is the warmest he gets at any moment and brings her into the, okay, maybe I can trust this guy, which is what leads into the the middle part of the movie. But it's just that one exchange. And he's still probably full of shit about that. Like, I, I don't believe, based on all the other evidence in the movie, that that was anything other than he saw her, said, yep, she'll do, and ran her off the road. Absolutely. I don't buy his story at all. I don't know. Especially when he lies to her her about his daughter. That is... There's this other woman who has disappeared. There's help scratched into the ceiling. No, no, that's clearly... Yeah. There's a lot of evidence that he is a terrible homicidal monster. And there's not a lot of evidence that he is not. There is a precedent for it, yeah. If he did deliberately run her off the road, the movie establishes there is a precedent for a similar situation of him keeping someone very much against their will. Yeah. And instigating that situation. You know, I think this would really come down to the first question I had at the gas station is that if he was the one at the gas station with her, I would agree with you. Absolutely. He saw her there and he made the choice. If the person at the gas station was not him, then I think it was an accident and he just brought her with him after the fact. But you're right. I would disagree. I I would say there's too much evidence on the far end. There's too much evidence to the latter. My my point in being is that that it's anything other than on purpose. If he sees her at the at the gas station, he can mark her as a target. He's not just going to hit a random car he saw passing on the road, though. So, Right. The If the gas station isn't established, it's him and he sees her, yes, she is clearly an established target in my mind. If that truck, like I said, was someone else, 
I don't think she was targeted. I think it just happened. I don't think if that truck was someone else, it would have been in the movie. There'd be literally no point for it otherwise, other than to make you a little bit questioning, I guess. But I think it establishes that she's a cautious individual and that she's not very trusting for good reason. Maybe. But anyway, so regardless of how he got her. Yeah. Yeah. He's disconcerting from the get go. And which obviously gives Michelle reason to say, just let me out. And Howard is very insistent that he can't do that because a event of some sort has taken place outside which he refers to as an attack doesn't know the nature of it, except there was an agent of some sort that went airborne that dissolves flesh, which is embodied by two pigs. He has, which can be seen from the porthole of the bunker, which you can see that their exterior has been peeled away. Originally there was an edit in that sequence where he's showing her was a Frank and Mildred, I think are the names of the two pigs. I think so. Yeah. Where he's showing her these pigs. He is also tapping a knife with her looking at it with the implication being is it's planting the notion in her head that maybe he just skinned the pigs and there's not actually shit going on, but he's insistent that you go outside, you'll be dead very shortly. So you're stuck in here with me. And not only is she stuck in there with him, but she's stuck in there with a three timer for the scary stuff podcast, three episodes in a row for John Gallagher jr. He plays Emmett Emmett DeWitt. His character was originally called Nate in the original version of the script which we'll get back to in a minute because there's some interesting differences between this and the original material. But yeah, so we get John Gallagher three times in a row. Local to Newark, Delaware, John Gallagher. Yay. And he does a great job of this film. We're just going to go ahead and call him friend of the pod, John Gallagher. Friend of the pod, John Gallagher. Welcome. Welcome, John. <laughs> Welcome to the three-timers club. Kind of like the <laughs> five-timers club. <laughs> but yeah, one of the things she sees with the pigs is she doesn't just see the pigs. She also sees his truck with the scratches on the side and the paint from her car on the scratches. And that, that's the mm-hmm. point where she yeah. realizes that he's the one who knocked her off the road. And so she's still skeptical of him regardless. I think it's the point where he realizes he fucked up showing her that too, because it's after that, that he confesses to her. And there's no reason to think he would have, if she hadn't seen that because he is also not the brightest guy on planet earth. Like as movie villains go, he's smart, but not, like super genius. I mean, like this is a guy who it's not super genius who built his bunker with no way for him to get to the air filter. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that access was supposed to work, but it jammed. Yeah. That being said, it should have been not an option. There should have been no way to not get jammed between him and that filter. Right. Yeah. There's some decided oversights in his logic, but it establishes that he served in the Navy for a long period of time when asked what he did there. Satellites. And it says, um, satellite stuff, yeah. which is evidenced by also a letter that he gets that Michelle finds later in the movie, which is from, what the hell is the name of the organization? Bold Futura. Sorry. Yep. Yeah, so Futura, uh, because that's another is, company yep. in the Cloverfield yeah, the verse. Cloverfield verse. Yep. And Howard is unsure what the source of this contingent was. He said it might be Russians, might be North Korea, might be Martians. Many times he mentions space creatures. Yeah. Like, like space worm. Yeah. Emmett makes a reference. So yeah, he has some theory about giant mutant space worms, which turns out to be surprisingly prophetic well there's reason to believe that he's gotten all of this crazy kind of conspiracy notions from his time working with the satellites which apparently is uh, tie into the cloverfield paradox later on Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't need to talk about that we don't need to talk about that i rewatched it but yeah we're not gonna we don't need to talk about it <laughs> Just because I watched it doesn't mean I want to talk about it. But one of the other things that leads me to think, while we're still kind of talking about how bad a person he is, 
So when you first see Emmett, he's crammed in the room with all the supplies, which is floor to ceiling with supplies and food, right? He's st- yeah, he's stuck at his little nook in there. Yeah. She wakes up in the little nook, and he'd been there for a while. She wakes up in an almost totally empty room, painted half pink, that looks like it's designed to be a cell. Yep. There's no food in it, nothing. With a big heavy door, yeah. So why did he have this when everything else is crammed together? He had this big heavy door and this half pink room with nothing in it. Hmm. There's actually a, a timeline that they got a hold of that this thing had been built over many, many years. One could make the argument it wasn't done. It wasn't a finished room, but no, it feels very much like a very disturbing cell. It was done enough to serve its purpose. Yeah. 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 And one of the uh, guilty pleasures that I've had with my roommate, Steve Myers, also an oddity prodigy in the months leading up to this was sporadically, I would watch episodes of doomsday preppers. <laughs> with him which is one of those things i would never in a million years watch on my own but it's really fun to watch with uh someone else so having watched a few seasons of that going into this i was like all right let's see how howard's preps shape up because i've seen a lot of bunkers at this point <laughs> but none of them as oppressive as howard's uh, like in all those seasons of doomsday preppers nobody went to the lengths of having a multiple shade light fixture of both fluorescent and standard warm light bulbs to simulate both daytime and nighttime. <laughs> so yeah, he's rather impressive. He's got the air filtration system. He's got a water supply. So yes, yeah, even I had a good time going through and kind of ranking his preps. <laughs> nice. I like that it took place near Lake Charles, Louisiana. Yes. Because every time I hear that city mentioned, it makes me think of up on Cripple Creek by the band. Nice. So like half the time after he said it, I've just, you know, <laughs> got that going running through my head. So well, Lake Charles, Louisiana was on the mail. So, yeah, that's official. He lives in Lake Charles. Well, they say it. Yeah. Like he says, I'm a few few miles outside of Lake Charles. So what happens is he confesses that he hit her. She kind of takes this as the, okay, maybe this guy's legit. And then they get into what I call the, it's going to take a montage moment. Where they go into like, okay, things are cool now. We all trust each other. Here's all the things we're going to do. They got the jukebox on, puzzle time, cleaning the kitchen, turning the cell into a bedroom. And then they pull out Cannibal Airlines. Mm-hmm. It's a VHS, Cannibal Airlines, which apparently is a fake satirical movie kept at the bad robot offices. Yeah. It's something they just pulled out to use there. Then they play the game of life, make fluffer nutters. Interestingly, the song they play there is I Think We're Alone Now, mm-hmm. which I, up until this movie, had no idea was a cover. I grew up on the Tiffany version. It was half the reason I loved Tiffany as a kid. And I had no idea it was a cover song until I heard the original in this movie. Yeah, me either. Talk about shocking revelations. (laughs) I still like Tiffany. The montage ends with them having missing puzzle pieces for the cat puzzle, which I feel is an analogy. How very subtle. Yes. There's very much a, okay, you think you got the whole picture, but wait, there's more. Yeah. And based on the commentary, apparently there was a game tie-in of some sort leading up to this, which explains where those puzzle pieces are. Oh, so I'm curious to see. I haven't gone back to look that up, but I'm curious to see what the setup is for missing puzzle pieces. Nice. I know there's also a timeline that they established, like Nick mentioned, which establishes very specifically like when he started construction of the bunker, when shit fell apart with his wife and, yep. and his daughter, when basically Michelle Alpha was kidnapped. I forget the character's name, but the first person we find out who he was keeping down there. See so, yeah, how all of that Brittany. is. Brittany. And they have a rough time frame for the, it's not specifically stated how long the events in the movie stretch out for but i think they said the running theory they were working off of in the making of it was two months that seems right that fits yeah so then then, of course the air filtration system goes bad then yeah that's when you get the scene where she has to crawl up there and she finds the bloody earring and help scrawled into the scratched into the glass yeah 
Because not only is the air filtration system there, there's a rear door, as it were, another hatch to get out. And right to that point is the closest you get to thinking that Howard is on the up and up. Yep. Is right before that. Yeah, because the minute she sees that help scratching the glass, it's like, oh, shit, I was right to begin with. <laughs> this guy is bad news. And that's when she brings the earring to Emmett and says, I think something bad happened to Megan. And she shows her the picture. And he goes, that's not Megan. That's Brittany. Yeah. She went missing like two years ago. And they're like, oh, so... Which is a good sequence, yeah. There's uh, Howard shows Michelle a photo earlier claiming it's his daughter, and the uh, Emmett reveals that it's not. And the implication, obviously, being that between seeing help scrawled and finding a bloody earring is that Howard kidnapped this person and killed her, which the movie decides to make very literal by having this really badly dubbed ADR line where Mary Elizabeth Winston says, he took her and he killed her. I was like, well, it was pretty thoroughly implied. It's really hitting the head with a bat, kind of, yeah. There's a few lines of ADR that are done in this, some of them are effective, like one of them is early on when when Howard is first showing them the bunker and Michelle is limping on the crutches and she starts to stumble and John Gallagher grabs her arm, Howard retorts, let go of her, but they actually add an ADR specifically where he says no touching, mm -hmm. which was kind of helpful because it helps further establish why Howard goes ballistic when he sees the two of them having physical contact over dinner later. So there's a couple bits of good ADR, but yeah, there's this one really bad one, which is he took her and he killed her. Yep, we got it. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. There's this, uh, along those lines, I want to talk about the way Howard seems to think in my mind. Is they're doing this, uh, oh, I'm excited for They do this game of taboo at one point, <laughs> and it's clear that Emmett is trying to get him to say little women. And the problem is, is that every time he tries to get him to say woman, he can't because he's like, you know, describe Michelle. You know, what is Michelle? He's like, little girl, princess. You know, it's to him, she isn't a woman. She is his daughter replacement. She is this eternal child that he's going to keep and take care of and raise. And it's incredibly just like, like that was, that was a really unnerving moment when he just couldn't say the word woman in regards to her. It, it, I felt really described the kind of mental mind frame he was in. It's funny that that leads to the only part of the movie I didn't really like is where he's describing Santa Claus and it's, you know, supposed to be heavy hand, like to imply that he knows that they're making this suit to breathe outside i'm always watching and it's i go wherever i want i know what you're doing i see what you're doing i know what you're up to <laughs> yeah it's just it's a little heavy-handed i thought yeah even by howard standards it's, it's like eh, a little bit too much yeah yeah but then he says i want us to be a happy family which is super creepy and i like that <laughs> so yeah she confesses to emmett what she found and they have to come up with a plan and the fact of the matter is as long as they're in the damn bunker they're kind of screwed so they have to think of some way to get out. So she comes up with this idea to make a hazmat suit. Duct tape known for its airtight seals. <laughs> <laughs> and forgot to mention, related to it, that the the stakes of the contagion are further accented by an attempted escape Michelle has early on when she attempts to go outside and finds Laurie Bream from Silicon Valley, all disfigured and trying to smash her way into the glass pane of the complex. Well, I didn't even recognize I her. Watching, I was like, I know that actress from somewhere. Yes, yeah, she's been in a shitload of stuff, but it's, yeah, specifically she was Laurie Bream. And not Silicon only did Valley. she have like the skin irritation going on, but like the fact she wasn't monotone just made her a completely different person to me. <laughs> gave me really heavy day after tomorrow vibes. If you ever saw yeah. that as a kid. Yes. Absolutely. Which is about the nuclear apocalypse, and it, it freaked me out as a kid, so that particular scene really unnerving. cut me to the quick. Very unnerving. Yeah, it was rough. 
So, yeah, they're making this suit and they're trying to think about what to do. And they decide that they have to at least get out and see if they can find someplace else to be. And that's uh, that's when things start to go bad. Yeah, that's when he shoots Emmett. Oh, so I upsetting. Didn't see coming the first time. And no. even knowing it was coming the second time, I was still legitimately surprised. It's really disturbing. It's you, you re- I, I think John Gallagher does an amazing job with Emmett. You really get to know him and feel for him and you like the relationship that he's building with Michelle and you're really rooting for him and her. And when he just so quickly and brutally gets taken down, it's gut wrenching. It is absolutely gut wrenching. Yeah. It's also very well. Did you ever see payback with Mel Gibson? (laughs) Uh, Yes. 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 So there's a scene in that where he kills a guy he knows that used to be his partner. The Greg Henry scene. Yeah. Yeah, He's got him on the ground with the pillow. And he's talking to him, and finally, it seems like he's not going to, they come to a truce or whatever. And he goes, do you have a cigarette? And he says, no. He says, well, what good are you then? And he shoots him in the face. (laughs) This scene makes me think of that scene. Yeah, very much so. And it's also, aside from being tensely performed and well done by all parties involved, that sequence is really well shot because it has the bit where Howard says, I accept your apology, and Michelle breathes the sigh of relief. And so she starts to lean over, and then all you see is on the right side of the frame, you just see just the tip of the barrel yep. of the gun come into frame. So there's no like shot of like Howard raising it or something. You just see this little silver barrel come in on the right-hand side, and then blam. And then they are all deaf. Oh. <laughs> and never hear again. And then, yes, and then we get the other. Now this, which at least they acknowledge in this, because there's a bit of white noise kind of <laughs> over that sequence. Still one more of these coming. <laughs> Now, I feel that this moment is further punctuated in its uncomfortableness when, so he's like, I had to do it. You heard him. He's, he's going to hurt both of us. And then she's alone for a bit. And the next time she sees him, he's all clean shaven and he's all cleaned up and he's all like, I'm ready to be dad. You know, it's just like, oh, gave himself a nice ass haircut. Oh, too. yeah. He's got the nice haircut, shaved his face. He's got the ice cream. It's just like, oh, crap. In his world, everything is perfect now, and that's just awful. <laughs> I hate everything about this. <laughs> yep. oh. And that's when she makes her escape. Yep. She starts the... She forget, she start the fire? No, the fire's early. The fire's very the, early. Oh, that's right. The screw falls out. He finds the mask. She locks him in, makes a beeline for his room. He somehow gets out of this barricaded room really fast, (laughs) considering she also toppled over a massive rack of food in front of it. John Goodman's character, more spry than you would expect, and also Herculean strength, because I clocked it, and it's less than 20 seconds (laughs) for him to get out of there. But he's confronting her in the doorway. I think she only got like two barrels in front of it. Like It was going to slow him down, but not stop him. Yeah, and not super distracting, just thought it was funny. So he confronts her, he's in the doorway, and he says, you know, I, I save you. I give you a place to stay, give you food. And this is how you thank me. And she has the line, no, this is, and kicks this barrel he has of super crazy acidic stuff to which he plops down essentially head first. Paracloric acid, I believe it was called. Yeah. Paracloric acid. Yeah. Yep. Which doesn't do well in plastic containers, incidentally, like he's got it in. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, they keep it in glass containers because it oxidizes plastic. Nice, nice. <laughs> So he, she falls in the acid. She jumps over him in the acid. This like kind of like really kind of nice acrobatic effect lands on the other side. You see the acid sparks some electricity starting a fire. She grabs the uh, bundled suit and she's going for the vent. She wants to go out the back door. And that's when he starts coming after her. And he 
they do a good job of not showing too much, but it's clear that he's he's messed up. Like a good portion of the side of his face and probably body are like severely burned from this acid. Yeah, it's like one eighth dark man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Excellent <laughs> description. Perfect. His power up has worn off. <laughs> and she gets in the vent and he's kind of stabbing at the vent, which is freaking her out. There's that last confrontation where he's grabbed her leg and he's like, come back. You can't leave me. And she's just like, go to hell and kicks him and takes off. At which point she gets to the back door. She uses this trick he used early in the film with the upside down air can to freeze the lock, breaks it open. And she's out. She's out in the sunlight. And then we get to the controversial part of the film. And we get to the hotly disputed ending. I Which I love. love. I love this so much. So it's like the whole point of the film. Wait, has let me been... go ahead and get this in now. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Not a fan, huh? <laughs> I like how the movie keeps trying to change the point. Mm-hmm. Like at first it's like, oh, this is this uh, woman leaving her husband. And now it's like, oh, this is woman abducted and like oh wait no it's a bunker film and then oh oh, oh, it actually was a woman abducted and now it's a whole other film and i i love that it keeps reinventing itself and i think it does not a bad job of doing it personally and the fact that it's got that heredity thing where it keeps saying yes 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 (laughs) but you know i feel the ending and one could argue that it is a bit tacked on and that it is the only thing that connects it to the Cloverfield universe, despite the earlier rumors and conversations. It was always meant to be there. I agree. Yeah. Like, it wasn't something they added later. the whole point. It's... They said it was in production. J.J. Abrams said that he really liked this kind of, like, Twilight Zone feel of it. The idea that there is something actually terrible going on out there, Mm -hmm. but you're also stuck in this terrible situation as well. So what do you do when it's terrible inside and outside? conveniently they had a great thing for them to have terrible outside which is the cloverfield universe so yeah she gets out of the vent and what's the first thing she sees so first thing she sees is an enormous craft of some sort which looks to be decidedly alien in nature as it sort of pivots in her direction and then becomes more alien in nature as enormous tentacles drop out from the belly of it and also drops something we don't see what but there's an object that falls from it into the cornfields prompting a really terrific line read from Mary Elizabeth Winstead, which is, oh, come on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's like apparently they had multiple takes of like, there's some they're like, ah, fuck this or something. Like her whole body language screams it. Like she gets out of the shelter, the bunker. She's like, I'm free. And then she sees this thing. And she's like, and her whole face is like, you gotta be kidding me. And she's like, okay, well, maybe it won't see me. You can, she doesn't say it, but her whole body screams, maybe It'll just leave me the hell alone. And then the bunker explodes. Like the, sh- the shed <laughs> extension just blows up this huge fireball. And he goes, wow, it just turns right towards everything. <laughs> like, oh, crap. <laughs> Murphy's Law affected full action. Yep. I just, I love it because it just messes so hard with your expectations. Yep. Because by this point. You think the film's over. You were convinced that you were watching this movie. Right. And then at the last 10 minutes, they're like, yes, you were watching this movie, but you were also watching this movie and you didn't know it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I'm, I love it up until the bit where she's in the truck dangling from the tentacles of this ship and ends up taking down the spaceship with a bottle of scotch. <laughs> okay. Okay. I think it's whiskey, but. A whiskey. Okay. I think it t- at this, it doesn't ruin the movie. It's like, I love conceptually having, she gets outside and there's legit whack crazy shit out there. 
Yes. And I'm with it up until there's this alien hound creature. Yep. Oh, it's disturbing. It's kind of hive mind with the ship that's sent in as a scout and it's kind of tracking her and they do some kind of, you know, tense like slasher S sequences where she's hiding from this thing as it creeps around. Yeah. I'm with it for all that stuff. It's when it gets to the bit when she's taking down this entire spaceship. It was just kind of a degree of leaping forward that was like, I was with you, just have her take out the hound. Because all that stuff was great. Like the bit where it, yes, there's the POV shot of it, like biting her mask. It's and you so unnerving. It like, then the teeth yeah! come through and then it comes away. That's, that's beautifully executed. Yeah. So I was with it right up until just the, I was like spaceship. I was like, I could have just done without that. It's so. I, I don't know if the thing breathes flammable gas. I'm okay with it blowing up. They set up the fact that it has internally some combustible agent. So they don't want to just have it out of the blue. And I, I think it's sold in the fact that throughout the entire film, she has consistently shown that she's, like, she's basically like, you know, MacGyver. <laughs> you give her any situation with any amount of materials and she'll find a way to make it work. And yes, it might be a little over the top, but I, I thought it, I, I liked it. It worked for me. It's absolutely in keeping with how capable she's demonstrated as being in the film. One of the things for me that it kind of took away from, but for other people, it actually benefited this was the whole thematic undercurrent of abusive man that runs through this movie Mm -hmm. where she has that whole flashback to how, you know, she had this abusive parent, this incident where she saw another abusive parent and she's surrounded by, you know, Howard, who is this abusive man and has this line that, Everything Howard does has a bit of a misogynist undertone to it for particularly, you know, he's separated from his wife when he's talking about his daughter who he never sees. He specifically has the line where he says her mother turned her against me. Yep. So all of this is about this very capable woman who's overcoming abusers. And when we get to, you know, blowing up a spaceship, it kind of felt like it just ratcheted it one degree too far from that. But for a lot of people, it kind of hammered that home. So it's kind of a coin toss. Fair. See, for me, it's like you're in this incredibly tense movie, you know, very psychological drama, very tense. Just And you get outside and suddenly the crazy cat lady from The Simpsons is screaming at you. <laughs> she can't scream enough as far as I'm concerned. You could have found out that fucking Ramona could fly and it would have been fine. <laughs> Ramona Flower. Uh, <laughs> I, Michelle. I wouldn't have cared. Like once it goes crazy, I wanted to go as crazy as goddamn possible. So it That's fair. it didn't bother me that she blew it up. And I, I like the end where she leaves in the truck and decides, you know, I could go to Baton Rouge and be safe, or I can go to Houston and fuck with them. And she says she goes to Houston. She chooses to help. She chooses to be a part of the solution. And it's it's a perfect choice. It's a great ending. Even the little flash of lightning in the background showing that there's more of these things out there and she's ready to take them on. I, I love it. Yep. I love this movie. Jacob cheering her on like James Woods and vampires. Yeah, that's it, Michelle. Fuck with him. <laughs> she chooses instead of quarantining to become an essential worker. Yep. And that's how awesome she is. <laughs> he does this all through the picture, folks. Uh, related to, well, not only just the ending, but the character of Michelle. Did anyone read the original script for this? No. What do you think the answer to that's going to be? Yes. No. <laughs> I wish I was that dedicated or able to find original scripts. If I had the time, I would do that. So the Cloverfield movies, or at least the second and third ones, are kind of like the 
this probably shouldn't be my touchstone for it, but the latter day Hellraiser movies where it's yeah. started out as something completely different and they said, fuck it, just put Pinhead in it. <laughs> 10 Cloverfield Lane and Cloverfield Paradox are both movies that started as their own independent thing. And then they said, fuck it, we're going to make it a Cloverfield movie. 10 Cloverfield Lane started out as a script called The Cellar, which I tracked down and gave a read. And the gist of it is the Michelle character, there is a lot less on the bone for that character. She has a lot less going on. She's much more stock generic kind of woman in peril in that the framing device of her running from a relationship that's kind of fallen apart is kind of different. In the original script for The Cellar, she wakes up in the cell not knowing how she got there. And she keeps blacking out or going to sleep. And she keeps having flashbacks to going to a party where she confronted her boyfriend for kissing another girl. And as these flashbacks go on, you eventually see that she was run off the road. Howard in this is a lot less nutty. He's much more, he's just kind of ambiguously gruff. He's not a Navy vet. He's a veterinarian in this. Okay. Who just had this cellar built. And the biggest shift in it is the character of Emmett is now a character called Nate, who comes in from the outside. So one of the big changes is he shows up in a hazmat suit, and there's actually multiple occasions where folks go outside. Okay. Huh. With Emmett, played by John Gallagher, when he first shows up, you're a little not sure of, you know, whether or not to trust him, but that kind of goes away after a little bit, and he becomes affable John Gallagher Jr. The character of Nate is much more overtly menacing, but the character of Michelle is like, oh, he's kind of threatening, but it's okay because he's hot. Oh. And so they instantly basically start fucking. <laughs> the original script is less of a do we trust this character of Howard? And it's more of this push pull of two potentially dangerous men vying for this woman's attention between Howard and this character called Nate. She's the object of desire, right? Yeah. And it's not terrible, but it's, I mean, obviously the, the core premise of the movie of these people stuck in a bunker, not knowing what's going on outside is very solid. Obvious why the studio would have picked it up. but. So the rewrites in this were all done largely by Damien Chazelle, the guy who did Whiplash and La La Land. In fact, he was going to direct this until he got funding for Whiplash, in which case he dropped out. And then there's the ending, which is also different. So in the ending of the original seller, she gets outside, has the same revelation that the air is actually fine. Whatever the agent wants has since dissipated. So she drives away. She gets to Chicago and Chicago is rubble. And script ends with her pulling over the hood of her hazmat suit over top of her. And that's the last shot. Huh. So they both have this kind of payoff where that establishes that some shit went awry outside. But what they do in 10 Cloverfield Lane is more interesting. So this is a case of a movie that was rewritten generally for the better. It takes all the things that worked, adds a degree of humor, makes the main character a lot stronger, a lot more interesting, which is especially buoyed by Mary Elizabeth Winstead's performance. So, yeah, it's a rare case of taking something and kind of shifting it in something else where it actually works out well. That's interesting. No, excellent changes. I'm glad with every change they made. Yeah. Boy, they really shit the bed with the Cloverfield Paradox or whatever that was. Yes. <laughs> so that was originally a script called The God Particle. And then they kind of retrofitted it into being a Cloverfield movie. Much more clunkily than this one. but It's not smooth. We will get the Cloverfield Paradox whenever we get to a space horror episode. I just subjected steve to it and yeah his response to it was basically the same as me but <laughs> so one last thing to say about the movie uh, i watched some of the special features for it and bear mccreary the composer of the film very energetic guy i like him the one thing he was talking about i really liked was there was the sound effects for the film 
where they introduced the instrument called the blaster beam. Yeah, I hadn't heard of this before. That thing is batshit. It's amazing. It's basically a 20-foot long metal beam with, like, guitar strings run down the entire length of it. And it's played with a mallet and a steel cylinder. (laughs) You roll the steel cylinder down where you want, and you use the mallet to whack the strings, and you hit the cylinders, too. It it was amazing. (laughs) I was just like... This feels like something the Violent Femmes would play in concert. Yes. (laughs) Yes, very much so. They went to the guy who invented it and he gave him like a couple hours of quote unquote training on the blaster beam. I was like, all right, go nuts. And yeah, they show this thing and it's bonkers. I, I don't know how to follow that up. <laughs> I have a couple more things. One is I, I always read through the IMDB trivia because there's sometimes there's some fun shit in there. This time, one of them was Michelle's car is a red 2003 Volkswagen Jetta GLS TDI sedan with automatic transmission and a Pioneer DEH 2300RB MOSFET 50W4 CD player car radio receiver. Why the fuck is that there? Who wrote that? Somebody likes cars. You know what's sad? When I was watching the movie, I actually had the thought is, that's a nice-ass sound system. It is. <laughs> and I'm not even a sound system guy, but I was, I was like... That looks like it's expensive. Like, how much money does she make? It's a Pioneer DEH 2300RB <laughs> MOSFET 50W times 4 CD player car radio receiver. I just, it was just because most of these are like, yeah, somebody bonks their head. And this one, it's like, here's the exact specifications of her fucking car radio. It reminds me of Deep Rising, where like they just went off on the guns. Like somebody was clearly a car buff and saw, oh, they need to know what this car is. <laughs> There's gun notes on like every movie on IMDb. This is what they were shooting. I'm like, why is this your hobby? <laughs> I also read an interview with Dan Trachtenberg that kind of had an interesting nugget in it, which was about video games being a heavy influence on him mm. and on his movies. But he, he had this one quote in particular. It's from an IndieWire interview where they asked, what about the video game's influence? And he says, in particular, all the great modern third-person action-adventure games are key. And also things like Journey or this great game Brothers, A Tale of Two Sons. Nice. That's one of my favorite games ever. I'm so stunned by the design of these games, which can be very moving experiences that interact with your agency when you're feeling everything. You think in first-person games there'd be more direct relationships because you are the character. But I was so inspired to study how it was that when I'm looking at the character models, I'm still able to feel like I'm in their shoes so much that when I am in a character in the first person game. And I just thought it was cool that he name checked Journey and Brothers A Tale of Two Sons, because those are games I would not have thought of when I thought about 10 Cloverfield Lane, (laughs) but they're cool games. I should hope he's a gaming fan. After all, he broke in from doing the Portal fan film. It was his first break in. Yeah. Yeah. He talked about that in the same interview. That's a fun film. Which I haven't seen, but I know it got a shitload of press online when it first debuted. No Escape, I think, is the subtitle for it. Yeah, I, I could swear I've seen it, but I don't really remember it. Because I got pretty heavy into Portal and the like, the Portal-adjacent stuff for a while. Like, I'm not a huge gamer, but I, you know, all the games he mentioned, I've played. I was really impressed with the job he did in this. I thought he did a great job as director. I was curious what he did after, and it hasn't been a ton. He did the, um, the one episode of Black Mirror called, uh, what was it? Not Beta Test. What the hell is the name of that episode? It's the one with Wyatt Russell in the uh... playtest. Yeah, with Wyatt Russell. He did that one, and then he did the pilot for The Boys, which I still haven't seen. But that's pretty much it from him, so I'm surprised he hasn't done another feature yet. It's very close to the comic book, I can say that. And, you know, obviously I love the Wyatt Russell episode, which isn't the greatest episode, but it's got Wyatt Russell in it, and I'm a big fan of him. So He's very good in it, yeah. He's fun in everything. So I think the takeaway from this film is that, yes, you know, while we may be having some really gnarly and awful stuff happening on the outside and we're social distancing, 
It's no excuse to stay in an abusive situation. And you should find escape and other cover, even in uh, terrible situations. And also in terrible situations, they won't play Monopoly. <laughs> <laughs> Not unless you want there to be bloodshed, no. But they will play Life. Life is okay. Well, so now here's a question. Would the star of our next movie feel better or worse if he was in the bunker with those folks? <laughs> well, I thought it was interesting you bringing up IMDb trivia for 10 Cloverfield Lane because the IMDb trivia for our next movie, I don't know if you looked it up, but it's basically two entries, one of which is essentially, it's a movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, our next movie and the most recent of them is The Night Eats the World, which came out in 2018. I have called this The Night Eats the Day like 500 times. So thank you for introducing it properly. I appreciate it. <laughs> I think I keep going with the night devours the world or the day devours the night. I almost never get the title right. <laughs> like I kept having to, I kept wanting to Google things for it. And I kept having to go back to IMDb. Was this fucking actual title of this movie? <laughs> yeah. This movie is brought to you by Blue Fox Entertainment and WT Films, which has a fun catalog of movies. So we have seen this one before as well. We watched this on one of our horror weekends. Correct. Yep. And it's another movie that I, I really enjoy. Which is interesting because I went to read reviews of it while getting ready for this podcast, and a lot of people did not like this movie. I saw a lot of people on Amazon didn't like it, which wasn't a huge surprise, but I didn't look so much at professional reviews. I remember the kind of the main reason this movie broke out was Stephen King tweeting about it. Really? Which is the first time I heard of it. Yeah, he sent out a tweet. It was like, I just saw this great movie called The Night Eats the World, and I saw that. I was like, oh, what's this movie about? I'll bookmark that for future watching. Well, see, the reason I knew it and the reason we probably ended up watching it originally, because I was the one pushing for it on the weekend, is I was flipping through horror movies and its poster is remarkably similar to As Above, So Below. Which yep. is one of the bits of IMDb trivia. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, its poster is like this. I was like, that's trivia worthy? Okay. And I saw that and then I liked the title, so I read it because I love the poster and I read it and I'm like, oh, this sounds interesting. And that's how we ended up putting it on our list. I can see the critical response being a little negative because it's a floor popcorn situation. You know, it's sold as a zombie film. But it, honestly, while the zombies are the catalyst, everything, it really is about isolation. Pointless and boring were the main <laughs> thrusts of the negative reviews. Well, if you go in expecting zombie action, yes, that's exactly the response you'd have walking out from it. Yes. Yeah, because what you actually get is an hour and a half of sad Beck. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, before we get into the, the plot details on it, so like Pontypool, this is one of the more obscure ones we're going to talk about. So we can say, if you haven't seen this before, one of the things I thought of while watching it is this is a movie where it's just watch the first 10, maybe 15 minutes. And if you like what you see, keep going. If you don't, stop. It's Yeah, it's fair. Once you get like 10 minutes in, it's like, all right, this is what you get. And I'm pretty sure to speak for all of us, when we got the first 10 minutes, we're like, all right, we're all in when we saw this during our week. Yeah, the movie starts with Sam, played by Anders Danielson Lai, going to a party. By his ex, Fanny. Yep. And her new boyfriend, Mathieu, who apparently, she mentions that it's Mathieu's friends at this party, and they're in this multi-tiered French apartment complex with these really massive apartments. And Mathieu's got some crazy friends, man, because the age range of the people at that <laughs> party over the place. nuts. <laughs> It's like you see all these college age kids and then there's one room that opens. And it's like two 80 year olds walk out of it. <laughs> hey, it's France, you know, maybe it's a cultural thing. It's just you know. to be fair. He's like French Russell Brand. So. <laughs> <laughs> so my first note for this movie is he seems like such a wet blanket. Like if Beck was a French street poet. 
And I'm not going to lie, I'm going to refer to him as Sad Beck the rest of the time we're talking about this that's, movie. That's In fact, fair. every note I have is Sad Beck and the zombies. I'm a loser, baby, so please don't eat me. Zombie haircut in my mind. <laughs> Those were my, my alternative titles for this as I was sitting there watching them. I'm a loser, baby, so please don't eat me. It's pretty perfect. <laughs> that's a good one. That's good. So the problem is that he didn't expect it to be a party. He's there just to get some tapes from his ex, and she keeps blowing him off because she's getting pulled away from party stuff. She eventually tells him where the tapes are. Not even anything cool. No, it's just like they're not CDs. They're not vinyls. It's like, I just want my fucking tapes tapes they're tapes he recorded of himself as a kid making music you know with various things and of course he locks himself in the office just to get away from the party looks through his tapes and then passes out yep only to awaken there's a small hint there's small hints before before we get to that one one more point about the tapes oh god a lot of them are him playing music as a kid and all this stuff all right so here's where sad beck is if you really think about it this is not his apartment it's her apartment yes which means at some point sad beck brought over these tapes of him making music as a kid for his girlfriend to listen to. And then he seems surprised when she is with French Russell Brand. Well, you're assuming they weren't living together at any point. He might have moved them in and now they're broken up and he just came to get them. Doesn't matter. <laughs> at some point, he, he played these tapes for his girlfriend and that's why she's with French Russell Brand. That's my story. Do you think Fanny decidedly traded up? Oh yeah, 100%. <laughs> Sad Beck is not an interesting person. You, you want a Mathieu to be the, uh, the lead of this? No, I love the way it worked out because he's perfect for this movie. Mm-hmm. It's just, that's what you're watching. Right. You are watching an isolated introvert be an isolated introvert in a zombie apocalypse. They do some nice subtle things that lead up to what comes next. There's uh, some people in another room. Where there's some like strong banging against the door. It could be just people being you know overly sexual. Or... It could be someone's starting the zombie out on somebody. Somebody thrown up in a toilet, too, that he walks past. Yeah. And then there's also the room he's in is soundproofed. And so as he's passing out, you hear just the subtlest, very muffled sounds of some screaming before he passes out. It's like, oh, nicely done. I like that. It's well done. It's a song pushing on the door and you just slowly hear what ambient sounds you can make out and just slowly start to pivot into something more sinister. Yep. Because Sad Beck is the kind of guy who goes to sleep at a party in the room where they're storing the coats. <laughs> well, he's he uh, got his nose busted. So he's like leaning his head back and just kind of like resting there on the chair and he just passes out. Yeah. Which, no, he probably should have called the hospital for it because he's clearly got a concussion. Passing out after a head wound. <laughs> he falls asleep on a shotgun later, so he can sleep in or on anything, apparently. <laughs> So Sad Beck wakes up and steps outside the room, opens it up, sees the places trashed, blood smeared all over the walls. For a split second, must think he missed a hell of a party. Immediately picks up an ashtray. Yep. Which is the most French thing I've ever seen. <laughs> so makes his way through the place, which is devastated, makes his way to the front door, opens the front door, and we get a really well-constructed shot where he sees Fanny, his ex. She's sitting on the top of the stairwell in profile. Yep. And he calls out Fanny's name and her head pivots in his direction. And we see that she is a zombie of some variety. Like half her face is gone. Yeah. Yeah. She she looks like an extreme, like Aaron Eckhart, Two-Face from the Chris Nolan Dark Knight. And it's such a quick cut. Yep. Yeah. And she just immediately whips her head in his direction and makes a beeline for the door, which is kind of this interesting thing where the crux of the film really comes out in this sequence, which is just silence on multiple levels the film is predicated on stillness and silence 
and it even carries over to the zombies. Yep. Which is they do not scream, they do not shout, they don't no moaning. Yep. They are dead silent. And when they zero in on a target, you know, it's go zero to sixty towards whatever their target is. Yep. But when there's no no prey in sight, they're completely inert and listless and just basically dead still. Yeah, they lose sight of you for like anywhere from like five to ten seconds. They just stop. It's very visual with them. And auditory. Yes. I just like how quick they move. Like that I just I love he says her name and there's no fucking bullshit. It's just all right, let's go. Food. Food. And they don't they don't make noise. Nope. They don't moan or not anything like that. Like you said, it's it's just the clacking of the teeth and the like the breaking of bones, which they said they did with celery. Oh really? Yeah. Nice. And the the director talks about at some point that he just doesn't understand why zombies would moan. There's no nothing going on inside. It's just this, so they're just their lungs don't work. No sounds. Yeah. And it's just so effective. It makes them so extra creepy. Yeah. It's added creep factor and thematically resonant, so it's kind of a perfect storm in that. It really, really, really works well. Which is interesting because the movie wouldn't be all that different if there weren't zombies in it. Like I imagine this guy's life didn't change that much. <laughs> yeah, no, not written not from from how decidedly uncomfortable he seems at the party early on, which is partly him obviously, you know, seeing his ex again, but also he just seems decidedly uncomfortable in this bombastic setting. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it doesn't seem to really change up his his life drastically. That's why he does so well is that he's kind of a loner at heart. He doesn't need these people. At least he doesn't think he does. If you can argue that anything that happens in this is him doing well. <laughs> he survives. He survives. But, yeah. Which I guess is the essential kind of crux of the film, is whether anything he does is worth doing or... Well, we'll get to Sarah later. Yeah. No, one thing you can say in his benefit is he he at least, generally speaking, does get to work somewhat quickly. After he has the confrontation with Fanny... He basically just starts setting about doing some odds and ends in the apartment when all of a sudden the floor explodes underneath of him because someone in the apartment below has committed suicide. So he drops into the apartment below, takes the the body of this elderly person who committed suicide, moves him into a different room, puts a sheet over him, and takes the shotgun for himself. And from there, he kind of moves, goes down, secures the ground level door, and rounds up all the keys from the leaser's apartment. And then it's like, all right, time to go room by room, floor by floor. Which he, he's really bad at. Because, <laughs> well, he goes all the way into this apartment before he calls to see if anybody's in there. So he like he's already in a position where he's going to have a hard time escaping before he makes any noise to attract if there are zombies in there. And, and it almost fucks him. He's new to this apocalypse. And he does it again later. <laughs> there's a scene later where he walks 10 feet into an apartment, so there's a, two doors behind him, and then says, hello. <laughs> Sad Beck is not good at this, but he does all right. Ah, <laughs> oh, sad Beck. Yeah, he rounds up all the keys, starts compiling a cache of food, knives, supplies, gets a swanky leather jacket. Gets it all organized, listed up. I love the leather jacket bit because he clearly gets it, you know, because he wants to feel cool. Yeah. Like, you want to think, you know, maybe he got it because it's tougher in case there's zombies, but no, he got it because he wanted to feel cool. He's like, this looks good. I think this looks good on me. Yeah. Goes through, searches all the apartments, any room he finds with active zombies, he shuts them up, marks them, and then we find out he's not 100% alone in here. He does have some semblance of a buddy. I love this so much. Alfred is like the best part of the film for me. Yeah, so there is one zombie who is stuck in the elevator 
it's not all the way up level with the floor and the gate is somewhat secured on it and he further secures it by tying it shut. So there's a zombie inside who becomes the closest thing he has to a friend for the majority of the film. I have a note that Alfred is definitely choking on a splinter. I make Beck jokes this entire thing in my notes. I I just can't help it. (laughs) And yeah, I agree with Nick. Alfred is one of the absolute best parts of the film. He's played by an actor named Dennis Lavat, who's been in a shitload of stuff. The main thing from his filmography I saw that jumped out was he was in a a film called Holy Motors, which is bonkers, but such a great face. Yep. He came up in the circus. Did he? Yeah, he was a circus performer. Nice. So like he uses uh, Alfred to basically have someone to actually talk to. Yep. And Alfred is in a condition where he decidedly wants to eat Sam, but he's not as just given his physical condition. He's he's less like constantly reaching through and he's more just kind of has his hands on the bars and just kind of idly gnashes his teeth. Yep. Because he's choking on a splinter. (laughs) And that whole opening sequence to Alfred that basically sets up two thirds of this movie, the whole setup of this is. It's basically if Neville from I Am Legend decided he just never needed to leave the house, where it's not I Am Legend, it's I Am Lethargic. (laughs) It's this guy, he generally secures this place, and then it's just him going from room to room and exploring the bits and pieces of all the different people who have lived there and have now passed away. Everyone has really fascinating furniture in this complex. Like Every single room he goes into has some eclectic piece of decoration I, I guess it's very uh very french but it's like there's the coffee table the enormous teal coffee table which is on wheels well the old couple has a stuffed fox with its bird in its mouth next to their bed the, the, the stuffed fox on the nightstand next to the bed in lieu of a lamp yeah it was whoever the set decorator was for this must have had a just had a ball well one of my favorite scenes is when he goes into the kid who likes punk's room yep where he finds the drums mm-hmm. and you know, he sets up these drums and he starts playing along. Now, this, I went to find the song, which is called Give Violence a Chance by Gloss, which stands for Girls Living Outside Society's Shit. <laughs> nice. It's a trans-feminist hardcore band out of Olympia, Washington, who originally came up in Boston. They're not a major band. They, they almost signed with Epitaph at one point, but then didn't and eventually broke up. So what I'd really like to know is how a single from Gloss ended up in this movie and i could not find how it's the only like one of the very few songs and music in it but yeah give violence a chance by gloss is the main song played in this film nice and i for the life of me can't figure it out it's a hardcore they're you know they're a hardcore band and it's also the only time that sad beck becomes mad beck when he gets drumming yeah he uses the drums as a sort of relief for the anxiety and stress over the situation and every time he does it he has the peeks out the window of this place because the zombies that are still lingering outside just come running and converge on the place. And it made me think, it was like, is this what it's like for Jake at the Boston shows where it, (laughs) (laughs) they're like the zombies, I guess, in World War Z, except they can't quite get their shit together to, you know, do the (laughs) multi-tier before the shit falls apart. They're just not coordinated enough, but it's not unlike that. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I just, I just wondered if it was some sort of take on like hardcore and hardcore culture. And I couldn't, really figure it out but i was i was interested that that's what it was just this obscure hardcore band so i who knows how it ended up there i'd I'd like to find the story but i couldn't track it down Mm. so yeah he's trying to pass time and he's like rocking out on his drums and he's playing paintball trying to like find 
pictures of people that he's found in the building, find them in the street and hit them in the heads with the paintball gun and mark them off on the picture. I love the paintball stuff. That was great. It's just great. And, you know, he sits down and has a cigar and a drink and chats with Alfred. And he had this one line that made me think a lot of I Am Legend, where he says, you know, dead is the norm now. He's the one who's not normal. I was like, oh, that's nice. I yep. like that. I like that a lot. Yeah, he's talking about his mother, and he says that one bit of relief he has, because he has to assume at this point that she's dead, but he says the one silver lining of this is she died like everyone else, with everyone else. Yep. Dead is the norm now. I'm the one who's not normal. Yeah, I have that written down. I say, I have dead is the normal now. I'm the one who's not normal. And then I commented, sad bat can't even fit in during the apocalypse. <laughs> but Alfred still loves him, and that's what's important. Alfred loves him. Well, yeah, well, sad Beck in a smoking jacket is really super Beck-like. I have another note here that says, Odelay, mon frere. So. <laughs> so, does anybody else think about in these zombie situations that, you know, I'm always like, why are not people more consistently in zombie situations doing, like, cleansing? If you see zombies, you kill zombies. It's just what you do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You have to take out as many as possible. That's what I would do. I don't know about you guys. Well, I don't know that everybody's trying to get the high score during the apocalypse. <laughs> this guy just wants to survive. <laughs> I, I will say, you talk about cleansing. I will say, this guy is very clean. Like, this motherfucker is more clean during the zombie apocalypse than I am during a pandemic. So Yeah, there's a sequence of him showering when the water craps out. And I started to panic. I was like, oh, God. <laughs> and not being able to shower. Blah. That's a stickler for me. But yeah, then he instantly puts... Basically, every pot in the building on the roof to collect water. It was like, good on you, man. There's like 50 fucking pots up there to collect water. So, yeah, he's he stays hydrated. Yeah, and then there's the cat scene, which is the worst part of the movie. Yeah, it was when he's having the chat with Alfred and he has the line about, you know, dead is the norm now. I was like, man, I'm really enjoying this movie. There was something about this movie I didn't like, but I can't remember what it was. <laughs> and it's like, oh, nope. I didn't even want to talk about it. Yeah. Fucking. If you're a cat person, there's a scene with a cat that doesn't end well. It's not graphic. It's no, it's not graphic. It's not graphic, but it's it's anxiety inducing if you're a cat person. Although it does feature a cat cozying up to a zombie, which is such like a fucking cat. <laughs> and depending on your read of this scene, it could make you hate the main character. Yeah. But anyway, moving on from the damn cat scene, he gets bit during that, isn't it? He gets scratched. Right. And he doesn't know if it's like a zombie infection or just, you know, from the car. So he sets himself up with a shotgun for it to go off if he starts to turn into a zombie. Yep. But instead he falls asleep and he wakes up when it goes off in his <laughs> ear and then he's not deaf. By his ear. Not into his so that's ear. the third <laughs> incidence. Third incidence in this four movies alone where somebody should have been deafened and wasn't. Yeah, we'll just assume it happened to somebody in Pontypool, even though there's no guns. <laughs> But after a while, you start to wonder about the guy. My note is that Sadbeck is really not a man of action. He never tries to escape. Like, he doesn't even, he doesn't try. He doesn't even think about it. Nope. He's just like, oh, I'm fine here. You know, which is probably why his girlfriend dumped him for French Russell Brand. Because if you've got that kind of personality, you've got to assume you weren't the most fun person to be around prior to the apocalypse. And then he ends up getting lonely, though. Yeah, he starts breaking down. Yeah, and he starts playing the drums again because, like, he can't see any of the zombies. Mm -hmm. And he wants them to come back. Because he's lonely. Yeah. So he starts playing it real loud. And, you know, he's kind of a hack drummer. So he keeps speeding up the tempo. And then he has the argument with Alfred. Yeah. And Alfred gets visibly more upset, which is interesting. <laughs> and this is, uh, this is where Sarah comes in. Now, earlier in the film, there's a dream sequence where he thinks he hears something running in the place. And he wakes up and he, he thinks zombies come in and attack him in his dream. Mm -hmm. 
I don't love dream sequences, but you could tell it was setting something up, and this is what it was setting up. Yeah, there's a visual repeat of it with an overhead shot of him lying in bed, just like this sequence of him being attacked, which turns out to be a dream. In this case, it's an overhead shot. He hears noises, and this time, based on his dreams, he's prepared. Shotgun at his side, so he just immediately blows a whole center mass in that door and happens to catch somebody on the other side center mass, which would be Sarah. He opens the door, and here's Sarah, and... He shot her in the chest, and he brings her into the bed, and he tries to revive her, and then we waste 15 minutes of film. (laughs) No! (laughs) Jesus Christ, Jake! (laughs) (laughs) It's indicative of his mental state. He is literally... Okay, so he brings her in, removes the pellets, cleans her wounds, feeds her stew, and then they have this kind of ongoing conversation about hope. And that you can't just stay here. You need to think that there's something better out there. You need to move on. You need to press forward. To stay here is death. To stay here is giving up. And the reason why Jake doesn't like it is because you find out that he is so desperate to actually have people in his life. That it's he's finally gotten to the point where he's just been so alone. And it's been months and months that you realize. And this was harder for me the second time, actually. This was harder to watch the second time. Because it turns out that she never survived the initial blast. When he shot her through the door, he brought her in the room and tried to save her and she died. And so his entire interactions with her after that is him just so desperate for human interaction that he kind of was a little crazy and believes that she's still around. And that's when he realizes that, yes, he was just talking to himself, but he was still right. He needs to move on. He needs to get out. And I thought it was well done. And watching it the second time, knowing that, what was happening it was so much more heart-wrenching for me going oh god this poor this poor guy this is awful so see i knew it was going to happen the first time so like even the first time we saw it i knew we were about to waste some time (laughs) can we just refer to this as the identity principle yes from the movie identity yeah is that where this all stems (laughs) i i just don't like i have never liked dream sequences in movies or fake outs like like even when we were talking last month about hush I understand what they were doing. I still don't like it Mm. because it's unless you're talking about a movie like Oculus where the fake sequences of the fucking thrust of the film, like they're a plot device. It just bugs me because you're basically I think there's better ways to accomplish and most movies accomplish them better than just having a fake out with the audience. It's just like you're watching a movie and you're invested in it. And here's this section where you're still invested in it, but you shouldn't be because it's not actually happening in the film. See, I don't think... It's always a thing that I, I'll never like. I'm never going to like it. Nothing you can say here is going to change my I mind. I don't but. feel that it was... I mean, it is, to some degree, a fake-out to the audience, but it, it's more important that it's a fake-out to him, that he's lying to himself. I mean, you could portray it as him having a 15-minute conversation by himself to no one, but I think it's better portrayed him actually showing his visualization of who she is. But we've already got Arthur for that. Like, does he really need to kill Sarah or to pretend Sarah is alive to tell him that, yes, he should have shot the zombies downstairs because he kills them during that sequence. He realizes he doesn't have enough food. And that's when he goes down to kill the three family zombies. Right. So whether that actually happens or not, you don't know. That happened. But it happens during that sequence. Right. He goes down to the impetus for him to do that is because he doesn't have enough food for Sarah. Well, he doesn't have enough food, period. He's running out of food. But yes, he believes he's in a situation where he needs more food, so he goes and gets more food. Yeah, I believe that happened. But does he? It happens during the dream sequence. 
It happened. It wasn't a dream sequence. It was actually him being crazy. It's not like he... The fantasy sequence. The sequence... The 15 minutes of this movie that don't happen, it happens during. The 15 so minutes it of the movie not, happens. You don't know. The only part of the movie that's not there is her. It's him talking to himself and going about his life and doing things that she's just not there. It's his imaginary friend. How do you know? Because when it cuts back to that, she's just dead in the bed. You don't know anything that just happened happened. No, he goes back. She's been dead a while by that point. By the way, ding. <laughs> Thanks, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> So, Jake, you would have been happier if he had just been talking to Alfred. And at one point, he just comes out, looks at Alfred and said, well, we blow this popsicle stand. And Alfred just said, thought you'd never ask. And then just rips <laughs> open the bars. And they just go arm in arm. <laughs> I think there are better ways for him to come to the realization that he needs to move on and take some action in his own life than 15 minutes of fake out about this person being dead. That's what it boils down to. I think it would have been better to have her alive. And, you know, have her die or fall through or break her neck or something. I don't think it's... I didn't find the whole sequence particularly surprising. So the whole reveal of, oh, she's dead the whole time. Like, that didn't come off as a shock. Yeah, it wasn't a shock. No, yeah. It just made me mad. But conceptually, in this case, I'm fine with it. Well, I'm generally more accepting of that stuff. But I'm really fine with it because the entire movie is about the externalization of his mental state. Yep. Be it how it comes out through the drumming, through the the stomp-like improvisational musical sequences he does. Yep. There's like 5% of the movie is dialogue-driven, so it's all about external representations of his mental state. This one's just a little more fantasy-based than everything else, but it still works on the same principle. Whereas what I'm saying is they already have a device for him to do that. It is as fantastical as it is as traumatic as the key. It's like he's just killed someone, so he, his mind snaps a bit. That's fine. Just show her dead and have him walking around talking to nothing. I, I like this portrayal better. I get why you don't. I, we're, we're, yeah, I, I'm going to have this reaction to 95% of situations like this. I will never like them because it's just trickery that you as a viewer have no way of knowing. It's not like it's a clever fake out. You have no way of knowing what's going to happen. Yeah. So it's just the movie lying to you about what's happening in front of you. And I, it's never a technique that I enjoy. In this situation, you have as much ability to know what's going on as he does, is what they do. They put you, most of the film is done through his perspective. He's the main character. It's all about where he goes, what he does, what he sees. And they maintain that in that what he's seen is what you're going to see. Right. And they just kind of hold you in his moment and they hold you in his experience. And I think to actually have him do otherwise would actually take away from it. Yeah, I... I think there's something else going on here as well as what you're saying. I think this is also layered in with the fact that after it's revealed that Sarah's dead and the zombies fully invade the building and come crashing up, the score for that sequence is an acapella group. <laughs> yeah, I didn't love that I'm either. pretty sure that's part of the... Yeah. <laughs> so it's a twofer with Jake on this. It's, shit's not real, and it's got an acapella score. <laughs> I'm out! Well, also, <laughs> it's funny because it's... It's right after that that he, he's essentially the instrument of his own demise or his own problems because he goes and he gets all those tapes and he burns them. Mm -hmm. And then he's surprised when shit goes bad. And I, so sad, <laughs> like sad Beck is the sent what I have is sad Beck, the sentimental instrument of his own undoing. <laughs> Burning the tapes is so emo. I'm surprised sad Beck didn't do it 20 minutes in. <laughs> it's very interesting that he does it as this kind of symbolic letting go of the past and deciding to live and move forward and go into what's new but you're right and it totally backfires and sets off the fire alarm <laughs> which brings every zombie with it like a mile on top of him 
And then he almost gets himself killed by letting Arthur out, and Arthur doesn't attack him, and that bugged me a little bit too. I liked Alfred. I liked that he decides to let Alfred out, and Alfred's like, "All right, I'm just gonna go back to my apartment." I'm like, like the zombies are for the most part mindless, but even in this moment, he built some sort of rapport with the thing. It's like. If nothing else, it's sort of like Alfred no longer sees him as food. He's become a part of the building. He's become part of the surroundings. He might as well be a piece of furniture as far as Alfred's concerned. It just happens to be walking around. (laughs) (laughs) Which is very indicative of the character in his situation. (laughs) Yeah, but it's still also the only thing that kind of breaks with what the zombies, every other zombie does. I, I, like, it didn't bother me. It wasn't my favorite thing. It didn't piss me off. I just, I I could have gone either way on that. I personally really enjoyed it. It also brought back some feelings of like uh, Day of the Dead with uh, the one zombie saluting the guy. <laughs> you know, it's just like, you know, nice. you can build rapport with these things. You know, you're tapping into mild, you know, burning synapses, you know, <laughs> it was good. So anyway, so he, yeah, he fucks everything up. He lets every zombie in the universe into his building. He has to flee from the top <laughs> using the grappling hook from the woman he murdered. He does it poorly, knocks himself out, slaughter. ends up dangling <laughs> for however much time climbs to the roof and then there's this shot of him looking out over paris yeah he hears bells in the distance and then it's just rooftop after rooftop after rooftop cranes his head around and yeah the camera just pans and you just see this endless series of rooftops and i watched it like four times trying to figure out if there was something visually i was supposed to see in that and i i couldn't find anything i feel the message is it's daunting it feels almost impossible and yet it's still worth it you have to fight. You have to try. No matter how awful it looks and are possible, don't give up. Just go. Make it happen. Push. Right. And the real enemy in the whole movie is his own inactivity, his own drive to inertia. Absolutely agree. And it, it's interesting. I'd like to read the book. It's based on a book by Pitt Agerman. Yeah, I tried to see if there was an English translation, and it doesn't look like there is. And it had three screenwriters, one of which is the director, Dominique Roche, who directed a bunch of shorts, but I don't think has directed a feature after this. Worked on the screenplay for another movie that's actually on Amazon that I haven't watched yet called A Breath Away, which is about people stuck inside due to a gas attack of some sort. So kind of a similar premise. So I'm curious to see how that goes. One of the other screenwriters on this is a guy named Jeremy Gez, who has a crime movie called... He's a crime novelist who's had some stuff translated into English, but he just got into directing. And he has a crime movie that's actually on Shudder called A Bluebird in My Heart, which is a really, really difficult watch, but is not bad and shows a lot of promise visually and has some great performances in it. Yeah, what I was also fascinated by this movie, and I kind of wanted to watch it, the other version, is it's not English dub. This was shot in English and also shot in French. So they ran the lines. Filmed twice, basically. Yeah, they ran the lines in English and filmed it, and then they ran the lines in French and filmed it. Nice. And everything I've read said there's not really It's not really that hard. Much... There's not that much dialogue. <laughs> yeah, there's not much difference one way or another. But I was really kind of curious to watch it in the original French because I don't think you really need to understand anything that anybody's saying to really kind of get the film. Mm. I would agree with that. I was curious and I, I didn't end up doing it. But it was interesting that they didn't just dub it. They really just shot the movie twice while they were shooting it. And I can't I can't remember anything else I've heard that did that. Now, well, it certainly feels dubbed the rooftop sequence between him and Sarah. The ADR there is really kind of glaring. So it's like, so it feels dubbed for a sequence. But yeah, but yeah, I'd be curious to see the original performances or the, the French performances rather. But I despite the dream sequence part that I don't care for, I adore this movie. 
I really think it's clever. It's well done. Sad Beck does give a good performance as a sad loser. It's very convincing. And he just, he conveys everything for this guy that you would kind of think about in that situation. Mm. And in terms of something about isolation and loneliness and self-imposed exile. He's the kind of guy made for the situation, but that's exactly what his downfall is. Right. Like, it wouldn't be an inherently different movie if it was just about a guy, like, if it was the Joker, you know? Where all this stuff is happening, he just he doesn't go nuts like the Joker because it's not a bad movie like the Joker. But it <laughs> that idea of social isolation and alienation is present in this, and it's not that far off from stuff like that. It's just with the zombies, it gives it a different track. And it, calling this as a horror movie is almost a bit of a stretch. It has horror aspects, but it's yeah. But I I love it. I love the stillness of it. I like the performance. I like the conceit i love the zombies in it you know the silent zombies with just the teeth i don't like the cat and i don't like the dream sequence but they're both tolerable things in a film that otherwise i would say is outstanding and clever is the takeaway here that social distancing is important but you can't overdo it (laughs) (laughs) well with all that water he's got he clearly washes his hands enough social distancing is important but it's you still need people to talk to and you can't isolate yourself too much i like it i like it Sometimes you got to do podcasts with friends over uh, Zencaster and Zoom. <laughs> they keep you from going nuts. And I, I would say that's kind of the point. But they're all, I, you know, I didn't love The Mist, but I still didn't mind watching it. Like, I'd say all the movies this month were entertaining. Yeah. I'm not really looking forward to coming up with two posts a day for each of them <laughs> on Instagram. <laughs> That's going to be hard. Just do Brooklyn Nine-Nine <laughs> stuff. Right? While The Mist was the weakest of the lot, yes, it was still an entertaining film. Yeah, like, I don't think The Mist is a good movie, but I didn't hate watching it. It just didn't do it. It's not something I'll watch again. I may watch the second episode of the series, because I'm dumb. <laughs> I am always excited to watch anything friend of the podcast Sam Witwer does. All right? So... <laughs> Yes, friend of the podcast, Sam Witwer, makes me want to play Force Unleashed again, because that was a fun game. Oh, such a good game. That was Starkiller, right? Yep. So enjoy our next episode, where we'll be reviewing all the episodes of Being Human, starring friend of the podcast, (laughs) Sam Witwer. (laughs) And also friend of the podcast, John Gallagher Jr. (laughs) Who, come hell or high water, we will uh, somehow get on this podcast, maybe someday. That would be exciting. Yeah, we got to find a fourth for John Gallagher, too, which will be difficult, given what our next episode is probably going to (laughs) be. He's friends with Hollis Brown, who I've met, and he's friends with other people I'm friends with. So, you know, maybe there's an in somewhere. You only have a few degrees of separation. Very few. He knows people we know. Like, he used to be friends with a former co-worker of mine. We just need to make sure that everyone we know who knows him gets this episode in their hands, and then they'll talk to him about it. He'll listen to it, and then, you know, kismet. It's meant to be. You think there's a human being I don't know that I haven't tried to get this in the hands of? <laughs> <laughs> Son, I do the social media. (laughs) (laughs) You many people I respond to on Twitter? Oh, yeah. Did you say something about Zombocom? Let's talk about Return of the Living Dead. (laughs) It's so much easier with Return of the Living Dead than anything else. Like, I tried to find people talking about the movie The Bay. That was almost impossible. Impossible. Good luck. Surely there's got to be some, like, Barry Levinson fan forums or something like that we can join. Anybody going to talk about the Bay? Anybody? I I am a member of so many groups on Facebook right now. My Facebook feed is very confusing. (laughs) Well, yeah, this was a lot of fun. 
Yeah, thank you for listening to this episode of the John Gallagher Jr. Happy Time Fun Hour. <laughs> it was a great idea to pick movies about isolation while we were all isolated. That didn't drive anything home. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was a great distraction. But that being said, speaking sincerely, we hope this episode has served as kind of a distraction for everyone listening. You know, anyone who's going through a difficult time with things. Hopefully this has been, has been a fun diversion for everybody. We hope everybody's staying safe. Hopefully things will be a bit better when this episode has aired. By the time this drops, yeah, yeah hopefully. Yeah, we are we are in the thick of things when we're recording. Things might be a little upside down right now, but there's definitely a light at the end of the tunnel. You know, just gotta. You don't even need a grappling hook to get there. <laughs> <laughs> don't play your drums too loud so that the zombies come. All right, so that'll do it for this episode. And as always, if you like what you hear, give us a review on iTunes. Check us out on Twitter, on Instagram. You can feel free to drop us an email, scarystuffpodcast at gmail.com. We'll be back in a month at the latest with another episode, and we'll see you then. Also, make sure to follow us on Twitter or Instagram. I put a lot of content out there, and I would like to acknowledge. <laughs> and, uh... No, what we need to do is we need to get a shit ton of people to follow on Twitter and Instagram and then massively unfollow overnight. So when you log in to check the next day, you wonder if it was a dream the whole time that you had all those followers. <laughs> <laughs> this whole social media thing is bullshit. It was not real. <laughs> Me and Eric are like, what are you talking about? The numbers have always been that low, Jake. The numbers have always been that low, Jake. What are you talking about? <laughs> was it 200 followers? It was two. Me and Nick. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, good night. Yep. Take care. Be safe. This is Nick Levy saying, be well. See ya. Old Lady Flamethrower was fun. Rest of scene sucked ass. <laughs>